All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Comics on Infinite Earths. I'm your host, Michael, and I have joining me again is John on the other side. How are you doing, John? Doing all right. Now, we were discussing before we went to air, uh, DC Universe is kind of a, especially the last decade, has been kind of a mess, and it's hard to track where we are in some of these storylines. Yeah, it's like, I, for myself, I'm not as big a DC reader or fan as other people are and it's when I usually when I check into DC it's usually when they have like a big event and then I kind of I will hear about a run in in retrospect and then I'll go back like I ended up uh, getting into uh, the Green Lantern Corps uh, like Green Lantern Corps War things like that with Jeff John and really enjoyed it but that was years later after that already Right. I, I kind of stopped for a long time because Blackest Night, uh, Brightest Day was like the big event, and I was just overwhelmed. There were so many crossovers, so many sub-stories. There were like 12 different Green Lantern stories alone going on, and I was just exhausted. And I kind of just stopped reading comics for the most part, unless I found something interesting at the library. And uh, I, I bounced around between being a Marvel and DC guy, but I have to say the last... I don't know, 20 years and mostly DC. But I, I find some stuff in the independent world that's really interesting. And the problem is, is it's, it's, you don't hear about it, you know, the independent stuff very often. I think the last real story that I, I hooked into was, God, this is so long ago, Ex Machina, maybe? I had it in something else. Yeah. Yeah, Ex Machina was really good. Like, again, is it that, like, all the best, like, weird indie stuff ended up. Usually is by people that ended up crossing over into into the big two and have got all the some of the more interesting runs anyway. Yeah. So. So this one is. Either where they. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, there it was like you were seeing where they where they were coming from or kind of what they were doing concurrently with some of their big time. Yeah, well, it helps. I think a lot of these guys who come out of nowhere with an independent title want to jump onto the bandwagon of, you know, the, I mean, because they probably were a Marvel DC fan and they have some stories to tell and sometimes they get out, you know, after a year or two and go back to indie comics like Kirkman did. But then you have some guys like Bendis who started off making, you know, small comics and then he's just there forever. Now he's in DC's house. So you never know if they're going to just... It's kind of like a, an actor where they'll do a big budget movie to help, you know, do the smaller ones, you know, get those small movies made. And some people are just like, nah, you know what, I'm just going to do this from now on. That's where all the big money, the big attention is. It's like one for us, one, one for them, one for me. Or James Franco, they joke, is one for them, 12 for him. <laughs> Nobody else except him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, Brad Meltzer. Uh, does, he still hasn't done that much. It was just like a couple years there where he was doing a bunch of DC stuff, and I feel like he has not been back in quite some time. He's off doing his, you know, his. Uh, I actually don't even know what he writes. Mystery novels, uh, spy novels. Yeah, yeah he's, he's a big mystery mystery uh, novelist, and he just you know, I knew of him because my dad read a couple of his books, so it's I saw that name uh, back. I think it was when he did. Uh, Infinity, uh, or, uh, Infinite Crisis, and I'm just like, wait a minute, that, did he do a comic book? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm like, wait a minute, that, that has to be a different, 
same name but different God. Now, what? So it's just oh. bizarre. The uh, identity crisis, you know, is that one where he really just broke out, made this groundbreaking story. Some people hate it, some people love it. It's it's controversial for sure. And I think that was like his big wave that make everybody notice him. I, mean, I don't mean like a, a cheap tactic, but that was that one big like everybody's talking about his story. But then when he gets into Justice League of America, it was just really well made meat potatoes. You know, going back to what he loved as a kid. Not really trying to be controversial, just trying to make a really solid team. And I like the fact that he mixes up uh, some of the well-known names with some of the more obscure ones, which is what I loved about the 70s and early 80s Justice League. Yeah, it's like you definitely, because in the course of, of uh, the Tornado's Path, are, you're seeing them build this Justice League and voting on who they want in. And it's kind of interesting to see, yeah, it's like... You almost feel that it's partially DC themselves. Uh, like, this guy feels like it's the conversations in the room of, okay, you, you want to build a justice league. Who are we going to put in? And it kind of almost feels like like that's, he just wrote, the, took the notes during the meeting and then kind of translated those. It's kind of an interesting idea who they, who they start picking and how they're running through that, through their choices and why. Yeah, I, I like I like the more B and C characters. I really don't think there's anything new to say about Batman or Superman. Uh, maybe Wonder Woman because she has been a little bit downplayed. But I was like, you've been talking about Green Lantern and Flash for the whole last twenty years, nonstop, huge events. Let's get somebody else in there and beef them up. Like, well, people don't like them. I was like, people don't like them because you're not giving them the stories they deserve. I mean, here they're giving. I would say Red Tornado is probably even a D level. A guy who would pop up from time to time, but never really give it enough attention. And they give him one hell of a great story that really locks down who he is. Yeah, it's definitely because I know nothing about Red Tornado outside of like his couple of B things he was in, uh, like Justice League. Like, I never thought about the character. I really had no idea what his powers were hours worth other than I guess he was a robot it's like okay now I'm kind of as I'm reading as I'm reading this it's like okay that's an interesting idea and they have kind of like a weird immortal thing but like, oh, alright that's a that is definitely a way to uh, to do this because yeah once you break a robot that would be the end of it and I'm sure that he's been he's been beaten you know severely in times past yeah where it's like you know the one thing that does bother me though is that they've destroyed his body he's it's basically a vision over in the marvel universe it's just like oh we need some tragic thing oh let's tear him apart i'm like yeah but you've done it so many times it doesn't mean anything we just know like a year from now you'll give him a new look you know just rebuild him again yes that's that is the flaw of these of these characters, and even then they, they have like the uh, what is it the, the metal men? Uh, oh yeah, they kill them all the time. Uh, yeah, it's like something like they even have like a throwaway line somewhere in the, later on in the arc where it's like they could be rebuilt, <laughs> and it's just like yeah. Uh, so basically, the main really story of this 
the main story of this is just giving Red Tornado a human body, like transferring his soul over with the help of, an, you know, a little mysterious character. We've got Dead Man, another one of those, like, cult figures that, you know, has a following, but just never enough to carry his own comic. Yeah, I enjoyed, I enjoyed it. Anytime I see it. It's, it's usually fun. Like, fun here. Yeah. I, I feel like Although, they should slip him into say, the DC Universe. Yeah, it's like, it seems like he's a character that you can either, A, have lots of fun with, or B, write some really, really dark, like, horror comics. Yeah, there was one. Uh, God, I, don't, I can't remember what it's called now, but I've had the book for a while. I think it was Adventures in the DC Universe. No, I can't be it. DC Comic Presents or something like that. I'll get you the title later, but the first arc of it is all about Dead Man, and they build this, like, Buffy universe for him. And it's really fascinating. The only problem is the next arc is about, uh, not Doom Patrol, um, Challengers of the Earth, which I find to be incredibly dull. And the series kind of just curtailed from there, just <laughs> done in 12 issues. Yeah, that... It sounds like that did something where you're only, like, an arc or two of one one thing and then jump to another character yeah that might not not work as well because if it's a less interesting character then all of a sudden you know yeah brick wall no way it's kind of like the, those old showcases that they had back in the early 90s just i'm actually rewriting i found a box of old stuff mm -hmm. that include a lot of like really old dc comics of mine back like the early early to mid 90s like, one of them was, you know, a couple of them were showcases, where it's like, yeah, it's three, you know, three little stories with three completely separate characters, and they're all just, like, little mini, you know. I love the anthology comics. Comic. They usually don't have a major storyline. It's just, like, getting a taste of this character, see if uh, if people are interested. But they had Marvel Comic Presents, which was their kind of, like, hey, we have one main character that everybody loves, like Wolverine, and we'll throw three additional stories in there about characters who aren't being served very well. And DC had the same thing with Brave and the Bold, combine a sub-level character with Batman, or like you said, Showcase, which in the 90s was the place to go for introductions to characters that just were kind of launching at that time. Yeah, like one of the ones I have is, it's post, uh, it's post Nightfall, and it's Azrael. Okay. And you kind of have this, yeah, well, it's, I should, shouldn't say it's Nightfall, it should be, it's, uh, what? Zero. Uh, I thought it was Zero Hour that third, launched, wasn't it? Zero Hour is because they launched well, Showcase again? Well, that's, that is actually what I'm, that's what I, I, most of it is all Zero Hour related. Okay. And that's, yeah, like around that time he pops up, but it's, it's like just right after he got beaten by, by Batman again. And he's kind of, it's kind of like an epilogue to that entire thing. Oh, yeah. The, uh... Kind of coming to terms with everything that happened. The, um... The team, so they basically built a team without really doing it until the end of the arc, but you, you see the entire team here. But let's uh, let's talk about them real quick. Of course, you got the big three, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. There's really nothing to talk about there. Um, but what's interesting is uh, they don't go for the obvious, like Green Arrow, because he was red hot at that time. They go for Arsenal, uh, or I think by this time he was Red Arrow. Yeah. They, they turn him into Red Arrow at the end of it, which... I just, I really did not like that costume that they gave him. Uh huh. Because I look at that and I just go, it's palette swap Green Lantern, almost. <laughs> I think they changed his costume later because they have one called Red Hood and the Outlaws, which he combines with Red Hood to take on these crazy uh, uh, jobs that, you know, are kind of like a Suicide Squad job. 
Um, he's much more interesting yeah. there. He is kind of useless in this storyline. I feel like they chose him for I don't know what reason. It, it really felt, a lot of this felt more innocent. I wasn't a big fan of this art, but it did, it looked like it was putting pieces together for the later run. Like, they, in a way, I kind of felt like this was a burn way to get around, uh, it's like, I'll tell, I'll have an Amazo story. I'll have, I'll have a Justice League come together in a way. But I mostly, I, I don't want to just quickly, you know, say, here's our new Justice League, and then have them fight something. It's, I want, I want to show the, the process of it, but that would be boring. Yeah. So I'm going to, so I'm going to put in a, this overarching tale, and again, there's the interesting stuff is with, uh, is with Red Tornado, him discovering, you know, being tricked into a into a into a frail human body and all that stuff, and still doing what he can to actually still be the hero that he was. Yeah, and having his body and be you also have, yeah having his body being manipulated and turned into um, a mezo. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting twist. Uh, uh, who is I can't remember her name. Who is the is it Vixen? It's Vixen, yeah. Okay. Which I. I understand why why she's in it because of the you know they needed her totems, but I have no idea why she's in this because she really just kind of gets into a fight, gets beaten, and then turn, and then basically just kind of loses her mind for most of it, just kind of like weird vignettes with her. But then the same can be also be said with Geostorm, right? Where they're building something, but it's like. I actually had missed that they that they called him Geostorm. All of a sudden, it's like, okay, there's this guy who just keeps showing up. I have no idea who he is. I don't know why he's here. And then, you know, oh, you've got Terra's powers. His, now, his powers okay. are really untapped. Every time I, because I, I read the entire Outsiders line, and I still feel like nobody's really tapped into how amazing his powers are. The things that he could build and create and, and just... It's just like the most simple. He, oh, he lifts a patch of ground up and he throws it at the bad guys. Like, no, he could ride the earth. He could build walls with it. You know, build armor with you know stone. And just, I can't believe that they've never really tapped into that. That only seems to be the thing is that there there are so many characters in comics that do not know how to use their powers. <laughs> like you, you think like, yeah, they always have them do the probably the least. Or at least the most obvious thing with them, like, you know, why did it take, jumping back to Marvel and years ago, why did it take Magneto so long to think about taking uh, the adamantium out of Wolverine? Yeah, or Iceman developing the power to freeze the blood in your body so that you instantly die. It, it, what it takes is yeah. a writer that wants to do it. You have to have a writer who is interested in the character enough and creative enough to develop those powers. I mean, if you look at The Flash... Every single nook and cranny of the Speed Force has been discovered and discussed. And yet there's so many other heroes, like Black Lightning. Yeah, sure, it's it's a simple, basic thing about Lightning, but what can Lightning do to other people or things? And they, they just don't explore this. Yeah, that's another thing I liked in this was they had they had him in the, in the thing. And, you know, a, while we don't really see him do too much as a superhero... He's doing all this interesting kind of 
background uh, information gathering stuff. Well, kind of I miss that about the DC Universe is the detectives. In the 70s and you know most of the 80s, Batman was the dark detective and Green Arrow and Elongated Man. They were all known for their detective powers. And then all of a sudden the big events come around and then it's just about fighting. And it's just like, well, what happens to those small, more contained stories about them trying to solve crimes without punching people in the face? Yeah, that is definitely true. Just, yeah, look, I'm actually kind of I'm looking through it right now and I'm just looking at it going, yeah, there's a lot of there are a lot of characters who look like they are they should be doing detective work. So I think even Vixen is a detective. Right. Someone like better ex-copper or something like that at least. I love the question. Instead, the question yeah. doesn't get a lot of attention anymore. Yes. Yes. I both both versions of the question too. I love them both. That's that's a character that really deserves a series. But at the same time, I think maybe you and I would be the only people to pick it up. Probably. I, I'm fascinated by I like the this the little smaller characters, the the C and D level ones. Phantom Stranger is in this and he's another one of those like it's really fascinating what he can do but nobody's really tapped in to like hey let's make an amazing uh groundbreaking story for the phantom stranger and actually one one thing that i kind of feel is a is sadly underserved in this one is intelligent Solomon uh, grundy yeah, that was a good one. I was actually surprised. And Starro uh, shows up, who is a classic Justice League villain. I mean, Brad Metzler, Meltzer, how do you say his name again? Meltzer, yeah. He really uh, knows Meltzer, yeah. uh, the history of DC Universe and what the fans dig, especially long-term fans. Um, yeah. in, in changing yeah. Solomon Grundy and Starro. Like, yeah. yeah, even though it's like I said, I didn't pretty like this particular arc, it's not from the writing. It just, yeah, it's just like one of those things where I go like, I, it's one of the things where I think it serves better if you're longer, like a longer standing version of it. So it's like reading this and then what comes next. Then it's, it becomes more of more of a, a larger picture. Yeah. Hey, what is seeing like like a third of it? Um, I'm trying to figure this out. I keep I read through this twice and I still can't catch. Who is the villain in the purple and black? That is not Obsidian. It looks like Obsidian, but I don't think it oh. is. Not remember. Let's see. Yeah, I keep trying to find it in here. Right here. It's bugging me. <laughs> yeah. See, that's the other thing that in both this and Secret Six, I there is something to be said for the handholdingness of Marvel, in which you know every book, every comic is someone's first comic, uh -huh. and they you know in, in, they introduce everybody ad nauseum, and you. It's like you might even get like a you run down the powers like very quickly. But there's always something to that because yeah, it's like you don't know who it is, then what the heck? Yeah, but DC you know, almost makes you go do your homework. Okay, so it's Mr. Miracle's brother. I didn't even know he had a brother. That's I feel silly now. Yeah, it's like I'm looking at him just he's mentioning that's so what I'm going, okay, he's definitely gotta be one of the one of the members of the new gods, but beyond that, yeah. I'm brother Mr. Miracle's so. yeah. Do you think it's funny how DC and Marvel always seem to have a character that's similar? Like, uh, Ultron in their universe is Amazo. Amazo? Is it Amazo? How do you say it? I, I would say Amazo, but, you know, how, we, how many of these things get pronounced? Yeah, but the, he's like their equivalent in the DC universe. 
Yeah, there's definitely a lot of, well, again, you have Darkseid and uh, Thanos. Yeah. Both being essentially the same character. Who would be the equivalent of Solomon Grundy in the Marvel Universe? I would actually, I would kind of say almost the Hulk in a way, because it's, especially now that they have, uh, with the Hulk coming back, and I guess Hulk is kind of a zombie. I, what? I must have missed this. What's this now? Oh, this, this is, this is like brand new, uh, this is brand new stuff, uh, because in Civil War II they kill the Hulk, they kill Bruce Banner. Uh huh. And then, I'm not, I'm not really following it, but in the new arc, uh, the new Avengers uh, big thing, their, their event that they're running, they brought him back, which is going to lead into, uh, what the heck is the, I can't remember the adjective uh, comic that they're bringing, that, but essentially, every time the Hulk dies, he also comes back, and now he's, basically, he is now un- essentially unkillable in the sense that yeah, you can kill him, but now he'll just resurrect. And he's now, they're trying to horror monster him <laughs> a little bit more now. Yeah, I, uh, I've been reading the totally awesome Hulk, and I, I really enjoy it. It's a lot of fun, but I didn't realize what was going on with the, the normal, everyday Bruce Banner Hulk. Yeah, it's like, they it, it took him out, and yeah, now, since no one can really be dead in comics, Yeah, speaking of, yeah, Red Tornado, I, I, you know, they're going to kill Red Tornado in this. And look at him, just he knows he's going to die, and he just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. It just tears his body apart, which is pretty fucking grotesque for a comic book. There's a gruesome stuff in there. Yeah, with his arm getting getting ripped off. Uh, just the the actual, just the Red Tornado head. That's all, you know, that eyes popped out and stuff. He's kind of like, huh, that's a... That's not, <laughs> not what I was expecting. Yeah, I was looking at this, and I just realized I forgot the last time Vixen was part of the Justice League is when it went horribly wrong, and Steel and Vibe were murdered. This is, like, right before Crisis on Infinite Earths. And uh, so the last thing she's experienced with this team is pure trauma. Oh. Yeah, that's... There's... That'd be a good reason to definitely not want to uh, join them. Yeah, it, did you read uh, Darkest Night? I think I Oh no, I don't think I did read Darkest Night. Um, there's a there's an arc in there where um, she has to take on the zombie. You know, remember they're like brought back from the dead and they're crazy bloodthirsty villains. But oh, oh even blackest night, blackest. Oh, sorry, sorry, blackest night. I'm saying like darkest I'm like I'm yeah, putting my. Come on. Sorry, I'm a doofus. But you know, she takes on their bodies. You know, the mindless, you know, bloodthirsty bodies of vibe and steel. And that really, like, locks down, like, who she is. Like, she has to step up now as a hero and help save this team. And I think, if I remember correctly, Gypsy helps them as well. And that's kind of like their personal forgiveness for what had happened, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's good, interesting, interesting stuff. And sometimes you just wonder, it's like, why... Yeah, why is it always Superman? Why is it always that? Why not just give these characters a, a better shot as opposed to treating them like jokes? 
it, it is strange that in movies, when a franchise gets exhausted, they move on. And sometimes they spin off or they go with a different character. And yet in comic books, it's like, you know what, you've exhausted these characters, but people just keep buying them, just keep buying them, because they throw the big money at all the creators. You know, like Scott Snyder basically revived Batman because he's getting kind of stagnant. But it would be nice if a lot of these big names would go around saving some of these characters that have kind of been left behind. I think the only person who ever does that is Jeff Johns. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, I think part of it is, is like, and DC was, be was much better at this than Marvel has been, but DC has at least been willing to, uh, when you end a character, let someone else take over the mantle and actually run with it for a reasonable amount of time. Yeah. So, you know, like, I I kind of grew up reading comics, and I, my flash really was Wally West. Oh, definitely. I, I still don't understand I, why Barry Allen is so interesting to people. I've read Barry Allen, and I'm just like, eh. Hal Jordan, eh. I was more of a Kyle and a Wally guy. Yeah, it's like, it's like I'm, I'm more familiar with it, and they, they're still around, and still the same character, and it's kind of, kind of made me angry when they, uh, when they brought, when they made, uh, you've got Dick Grayson as Batman, and I liked the dynamic, I was never a fan of uh, Damian Wayne, but I at least thought the dynamic between a less stick-up-the-butt Batman <laughs> and a uh, and a little sociopath uh, worked worked a little bit better, and then you know that lasted all of like five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I do hate that when they start bringing it. Like Connor Hawk uh, took over for Green Arrow, you know, after he died. And then um, I thought he was a fascinating character because he was such a newbie to the entire world because he had been in a, um, a Buddhist, you know, monk kind of life. And then all of a sudden he's brought to America. He's going on these great adventures. And uh, he was a superior fighter to his father, at least in my opinion. But his attitude was so wildly different. And, and Kyle was trying to give him, you know, show him the ropes of being a superhero out in the normal world. And they ditched that. The second Kevin Smith was like, hey, let's bring, uh, um, you know, the original Green Lantern back, or Green Arrow back. And I was like, oh, crap. I love Kevin Smith. It's a good storyline, but I, I just really like Connor. Yeah, see, I, I was never, I never really read Green Arrow until that, until that point. Yeah, so I, I, I don't think a lot of people were. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was an interesting dynamic with those two characters together. But, yeah, it's like I wasn't too familiar with, with Connor and all, also. Yeah, if they ever put out a trade of it, you should check it out. It's, it's pretty interesting. I'll, I think there is one out there where him and uh, uh, Green Lantern go out on the road and have some fun together. And it's, it's a pretty good storyline. You get it pretty cheap, too. I think it's called Hard... Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll get the title for you. I can't remember it right now. <clears throat> oh. Okay. So that's pretty much it for Tornado's Path for me. Um, so I, I, did you anything else you want to say before we go to the next comic? Uh, it's one that, it, I will say it's about the artwork in it. It's artwork I love and hate at the same time. Because it's that, you know, that kind of early, mid-2000s kind of, we, we saw what Jeff Johns did, we all want to be, uh, not Jeff Johns, uh, Jim Lee. We all yeah. saw what Jim, Jim Lee did, and we all want to look like Jim Lee. Stokes, but it, 
so it's got this interesting thing, but there's also moments where I just kind of look at it, oh, I should say Gimli slash Popcat. Yeah, Ed Menace, I think he was brought up through Wildstorm, if I remember correctly. I look at, I look, I'm looking at, like, probably one of the pages that he got read, uh, Red Trainer talking with his wife, and I, all I can see is just, like, any any of the characters uh, from, from like, uh, like what, uh, Adam, stuff like that, just, like, see that, that face, it is kind of, like, I'm nostalgic for that, obviously this is older, too, so, that's, like, yeah, I remember when this art style was the norm. You know, everybody wants to do this. Yeah, sort of, it's either sort of it's either Michael Turner or Jim Lee at this time. Yeah. And in our next storyline, yeah, I I really enjoy because the artwork it feels fresh. Like I really don't know anybody who draws. I've never even heard of this person, Nicola Scott. Completely new to me, and I really enjoyed the artwork. I love the artwork. It does actually make me think of Steve Dillon. Oh, oh, you know what? There's I didn't even I didn't even plant that in my mind. But you are absolutely correct. The second you said that, I saw it. I was like, oh yeah, I see. Okay. Yeah, it's it's definitely like that, but it does have its own personality too. It's not. It's you know it's reminiscent of it, but I don't I wouldn't go like oh no this person like this person's copycat and someone else's style. Yeah. Is Gail Simone the most underrated writer in comics right now? I just she's been amazing to me for almost twenty years now. It's just astonishing how good she is. She is amazing. I, she is one of my favorite writers. And one of those things where I was in in uh, looking for looking for one of these books to pick up, and you know, I'm going, okay, Secret Six, they have that. You know, uh, looking at the list I was given, like they have that. Like, oh, it's written by Gail Simone. I'm definitely, you know, thank God they have this. Yeah. Uh, this is the, actually the second arc of Secret Six, which I believe started off, um, it was Salvation Run, which is kind of a lead into uh, Villains United, but Secret Six is straight out of the storyline of Villains United, where you got this small group of people who don't want to join what's basically the syndicate, where all the villains are working together in like this big mobster way, and if you're not part of the team then we're going to destroy you, so they kind of just go off on their own. And that ran for a few years, and this is kind of the relaunch point. And I have the original run, which I enjoy, but this one goes deeper into the psyches of the character more than the original run did. It's almost as if someone new had taken it over, but no, it's still it's still Gail Simone, but she wants to take in a breather and rethought the character's approach. Well, but it, I did notice that did say that this is like issue one, you know, because they're showing like the cover arts, and I'm going, okay, this is the start of it, but then it felt, yeah, like, as you said, look, okay, this feels like it's not the beginning, they're, obviously these people have been together, obviously they've done something, there is a history, so I'm like, okay, so it is a continuation, just a new volume of yeah, it feels like a season. They relaunch stuff so often that it feels more like TV seasons than um, just restarting a series. It's like, okay, well, this is season three. This is a whole new arc, and this is the direction we're going this season. You're like, okay, well, I get it. What's nice is, even though this is a continuation, and you can definitely feel that, it also is open enough that you kind of, like me kind of walking into this, I kind of get what everybody's about, even if they, even if they're kind of like, I have no idea who Ragnarok is, and 
and it took me a few seconds when they were, you know, going like, scan, uh, scandal, I'm like, I'm going to this scandal savage. Okay, alright, so that's probably Vandal Savage's daughter, so I can extrapolate <laughs> from yeah. what at least I know. Um, we also have Deadshot, who, you know, is probably the big show, you know, you know, when it comes to selling the comic, you know, Deadshot's the one that gets people's attention. Uh, Catman, surprisingly, is the most interesting character in this entire run, which, Catman was a joke for so insanely long. Yeah, it's like, I just, I looked at that and I just went, this character, I, I felt that this character was such a joke, but I'm going like, but you have so much interesting stuff that you're working with this character that, you know, it's like, wow, so, you know, under someone else, this character would be so horrible. Wait a minute, we have six. So I just I just now am realizing you almost go the entire run with just five. There's no, there's not six. Yeah, you don't, you get, you get to Vegas uh, when you finally get their, uh, their sixth member, uh, Jeanette, who's a fantasy. Is this a new character? Because I don't know this character. She is a new character. Okay, because it's like I have no history for me at all with this. I mean, to, to tell you the truth, though, Ragdoll is a completely new thing to me. Like you said, Scandal's a new thing. Uh, Bane, uh, completely reinterpreted from the version that we saw for so long. He's now, uh, basically he said he was a junkie and he wants to be clean now. And he has a really interesting sense of honor. Where the rest of them are a little questionable in, in what they want, their motives. Yeah, especially you kind of you kind of feel like yeah, everyone would would definitely be cutthroats. Although Ragdoll kind of seems that he's a little more for the group as a whole. You would everyone else you do kind of feel like definitely would stab each other in the back at any time. But again, except for like Bane and Ragdoll. Yeah. Uh, Catman, he has a serious throwdown with Batman, and it's kind of interesting that Batman is very protective of him, even though he is a criminal, but I guess he served his time, so now he's, like, giving him his, I guess, sign of respect? Yeah, and that's, and that's kind of where I got confused a little bit, where when you're going over these, okay, where does this get placed in, in the continuity? Yeah. Because... At one point, we get the uh, little thing with the Black Lanterns. Uh, the, the little Black Lantern origins and whatever uh, segments near the end. Yes, this must have been 2008, maybe 2009. Yeah, which made me wonder. It's like, okay, is this post-Final Crisis? And is this now uh, Dick Grayson Batman? Or is this still Bruce Wayne Batman? Is this just right before? When oh, this right. That would change. That's why maybe if it's Dick Grayson, that makes a lot more sense in the attitude that Batman's portraying. Because there's no way in the world that Bruce Wayne would ever say anything about having a burrito. But that definitely sounds like a dick thing to say. Yeah, and but at the same time, I I know people have written. I don't want to say jokey Batman, but jokey Batman. Like well, Kevin, in the Kevin Smith Greenland uh, Green Arrow run, there is a jokey Batman. Yeah. The um, the main story here is interesting. I don't want to give away, away everything, but there is a villain who lives in a crate who's a complete messed up figure, who I, I honestly mentally is more messed up than physically, and uh, they're after a card, which will give them a special I, something. <laughs> I love I love that card. That is a great idea. 
Yeah, I remember Neuron. He's kind of a character that's not talked about much, but there was a big thing around 95 called Underworld Unleashed. And all of these low-level villains sold their soul to Neuron for new powers. And they became a serious threat. And I thought that was a cool storyline that I, I want to revisit because I don't, I don't remember much about it. That definitely sounds I definitely get to sit and see some of that. Because it depends on, like, hey, who, which, uh, which villains felt like they were underserved. Because, I mean, let's be honest, in almost every, in almost all of these things, uh, villains get, get trashed anyway. So yeah. Which ones really feel that they need the power of them? The, um, so the main villain here is truly the stuff of nightmares. It's terrifying, but it's also counterbalanced with the fact that there's a bounty out for the Secret Six, and you got like these low-level goofball villains who usually get their asses handed to them in a second, all teaming up together, and it does become a threat, but individually it's kind of amusing watching them just lose their shit over <laughs> the most minor things. Oh, I just like how they're, they get ambushed at that one point, right before we really find out what's going on, and you know, like Cheetah and a couple of other villains. Yeah. And... As, as they're fighting, they're, uh, kid is outside, and two of the other guys rush in, and they're going, okay, where is it? You know, we're, you know it's like, we're, we're going to kill whoever has it. Like, Cheetah's got it. <laughs> and, and watching the team, like, switch gears constantly because you're never sure who's going to go for what based on that card. Do they believe it's real? Do they not believe it's real? Are they going to protect each other? Are they going to split apart and fight each other? You know, and, and it, the, the story is truly fascinating. I think the most fascinating part, though, is the main villain because I've never seen this person before. I don't know the whole story, and I'm just like, I, I almost don't want to know everything. Like, I want to try to slowly piece it together. And I, I wonder if she, from that, what I, I think it's a, essentially a one-off villain, from what I understand. I don't know. Whatever it is, it's truly haunting and fascinating because I just uh, I can't stop thinking about like how twisted and strange it is. Well, just like it's the, the whole thing, especially with uh, the character not wanting to be seen and killing anyone who sees who sees uh, Judy. What the character is called. Yeah. You see my face. Bah, you know. And the two twins, um, who seem like just dumbass villains, and they kind of are, but the little tiny bit of story that they show about why they're so connected um, is interesting too. Gail Simone makes this thing action packed, but yet, while the action's going, yeah. you're, you're constantly developing these characters. They're just not throwaway violence. I think their most interesting is actually when they when they captured Bane, and they're uh, and they're talking about and they have all really the utmost respect for they if it's like if it doesn't with how they've been written prior to that issue and to that point when they say if it was us we would let you go you actually do kind of believe that yeah they they respect him but that's not their choice they are just young right. Here's the thing that I'm wondering about, the the thing that they're all looking for, the card, is I, I don't understand why it would matter at that time. Like, do they think they're going to hold on to it forever until it's useful? No, they're going to be fighting until the end of time over this thing, unless it's used. 
And I was just like, well, do you think... Oh, yeah, how do you give it... How do you discuss it without giving away the secrets? <laughs> well, well, you probably could. Because it's still, in a way... Do do you believe that that is what it is? Because yeah. It's, and, and, what, and also, what happens to the card can still... You can still sit there and, like, have... You know, a mystery as to what happens to the card. Yeah, but, I mean, it could go decades without ever being used. And, and uh, so, there. Oh, yeah. therefore, are you on the run forever? How come? How is that a life? That's almost its own hell. Yeah, but that's the sort of I would say that's the price one would pay for for how important that card really is. Yeah, it's, it, well, really I think we I think, think we did a good job of not saying. I think we did a very good job of not giving away the secrets. <laughs> we gave a little bit away on uh, the tornado's yeah. path. Yeah, but it's but that's also it. It very much Tornado's Path is very straightforward. This one is a is very twisted turning, and again, depending on how you take it, and even with how these characters are, you know, would you would any of them truly believe what it is? Yeah, that's the other big question. Too good to be true in their for who they are. The problem, I really enjoy this series, and I want to continue reading it, and then I discover that it, it's done. I mean, there was another short run, but um, because uh, Suicide Squad has become a phenomenon, uh, you know, Deadshot's been taken out, and, the, and DC's focus is not on the Secret Six in any way whatsoever. This was kind of like a replacement series for Suicide Squad for a long time. Yeah, and that's, definitely, I can see that, because it very much feels like that's what that's what these would do. They're mercs who are going to get into impossible impossible missions for a great paycheck as opposed to just staying alive and commuting your sentence. But right. I know I got I got the original Suicide Squad run uh, on my um, in my drawer ready to read and I'm just curious you know, where it was then in the beginning, where it is now, because I haven't read any of the uh, new stuff, but I feel like Harley Quinn has now become the complete focus when, um, I feel like maybe they're only yeah, dictating that based on popularity, not because it's necessary for the story. Yeah, and that's the thing, like, I like, for the most part, I like Harley Quinn as a character. I think people would have done a good job of taking essentially a a third-tier joke character, you know, something that just really, really not a good character, and then just develop her into into an interest, into something that's worth reading, and then did the Deadpool thing and oversaturated the market. Yeah, oh my god, do you remember when Deadpool wasn't selling at all and they were desperate to save it? And then it disappeared for years, and it didn't come back until the Wolverine movie, and then it all of a sudden just phenomenon, and it hasn't gone away in almost a decade. And it's and even this like up until up until well I, I would say most recently it's been good but it's like hey it's two really good runs and then the one I particularly care about but it's like yeah we had to team them up with cable to to get people to read the comic yeah well the, and so then for a while there was Agent X if you remember that one where everybody was like is this Deadpool did he have amnesia they weren't really sane and then it turns yeah. out it was just a bunch of crap. Yeah, it's like that's they couldn't figure out what to do with it after a while, 
and now it's just you know, way too much. I like Deadpool. I think he's a fun character. They're definitely written better than others, but there's way, way too much. Yeah, it's an exhaustion point. That's the problem with these universes. They have like 10,000 characters, but they lock down on like just a few until people are so sick of them. Do you remember when The Punisher was like the biggest thing for a while in Marvel? And now it's just barely there. Okay. I I actually, uh, it's not the popular run of it either, but there's a uh, the Punisher War Journal that's, that's spun out uh, from the original Civil War is actually my favorite run of it for the for the longest time and it's mostly because they decided to this is also kind of post Garth Ennis although I think he was doing some of that it wasn't necessarily doing Garth Ennis humor but uh-huh. it was having a sense of humor with the pun okay so we're talking about the second Punisher War Journal the one that was drawn by Ariel Olivetti right well at least in the beginning yeah and that was yeah, fun. I really enjoyed that. Really... I, I didn't like the original Punisher War Journal. I thought it was way too macho, eighteen, you know, eighties bullshit. Yeah, it. He's a, definitely a character that has only like a certain amount of good stories to tell by only certain people, and you can only do the revenge, you know, revenge quest for so long before you have to find some way to turn turn it around and not that turning him into an avenging angel style person. <laughs> Which they did. He came back from the dead and he was an avenging angel with like these weird phantom guns and uh, it was drawn by Bernie Wrightson and everybody was like, what in the hell is this? And like a year later it was like, okay, we're going to bring him back to life. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? We didn't do this. You were on drugs apparently. Yeah. I always joke that Punisher is the one character where they just can't seem to like, oh, we're on a good run, we're going to fuck it up. I mean, I remember when they turned him into a black guy, which has got to be the most offensive thing Marvel's ever done. Oh, God, yeah. It's, and not offensive, but also just a head-shaking thing is when they turned him into Frankenstein. I'm sorry, what? Oh, you did not read Frankencastle? All right, is this, is this recent? No, no, this is, uh, God, uh, post, uh, God, see, it tried to, uh, Dark Rain, when they were doing that stuff. Oh, boy. Uh, they had, uh, the, the Norman Osborn Evil Avengers thing. Oh, uh, they my had, God. They had a thing, a series called The List. Uh-huh. For the most part, it was pretty good. And uh-huh. the Punisher thing was, uh, Wolverine's son, uh, Dakin, goes out to, uh, kill the Punisher. And does. He tops the puncher up into little pieces. Okay. And that was essentially that was essentially the end of what actually would be the Punisher War Journal series at that point too. Is that he gets killed. And then the monsters in the sewers find him and turn him into Frankenstein. Bring him back and it's I, I saw the first issue of it. I, I didn't even buy it. I just flipped through it and went it all sounds wow. like madness. It really, Marvel really just does not know what to do with that character. It's just like, um, maybe if you don't know, just leave him alone. Just go away for a while until another writer comes along and has a story he needs to tell. I'll even say, the list, the, the list, uh, you know, hyphen Punisher, that is definitely worth reading. It is a very good end to the character. If, you know, and 
yes, he has chopped the pieces and stuff, but it also, it's, it feels right. It feels like if you're going to end the Punisher, him going up against someone who, one, is stronger than him, has more powers, and is just as ruthless, because they, they fight. They do a very, you know, very violent fight with each other. Just, that can just cause. Huh. And then can cause. Well, now that sounds so terrible that I'm fascinated now. Like I, uh, they, yeah. I've been, yeah. I just, I, whenever Marvel screws up, it, it seems fascinating in retrospect. Like the whole Spider Clone saga. Now I'm interested. Years later, I'm curious as to where they oh. derailed. Maximum clonage is so terrible, but I like Ben Riley. Well, at least I liked him at the time. Uh huh. I do feel that he's. They they went too long. That was the, that was its problem. It was supposed to only run a short time. And he just kind of kept getting longer and longer and just became more and more ridiculous. Weird. Yeah, the and 90s were a rough period, down. man. It, it, the funny thing is, I say I'm a DC guy because in the 90s, Marvel got so bad that I just escaped. And I went over and I discovered Justice Society. And, and I, I was just amazed by how good that was. And uh, that well, that's what really brought me back into comics because DC Comics was doing more layered stuff. They couldn't afford the big artists. Yes, they screwed up a couple times with like Extreme Justice and stuff like that, and embracing Lobo way too much. But DC really seemed to uh, come back to earth pretty fast. Where Marvel's still doing crazy covers and going bankrupt and just you know terrible storylines that just were so wrongheaded. Yeah, I, I gave up. That's around that time is when I gave up on comics for for a good almost not even I won't say ten years, but a good eight or so. Yeah. It took it took a while to get me back. Well, it's an expensive hobby. That's why it's sometimes it's hard to do the show. Uh, I guess we're kind of at the end of this run. I, I apologize. I got off work. I'm exhausted. I just want to eat and fall asleep. Oh, <laughs> um, I know how that is, man. Alright, um, anything you want to say about Secret Six before we go? Uh, definitely, knowing that it's a Gail Simone product, I'm definitely going to be looking for more of it. Yeah. I definitely uh, want to continue. When she took over Birds of Prey, I was apprehensive because I was a huge Chuck, Chuck Dixon writer. Uh, sorry, Chuck Dixon fan at the time. But she really wowed me, and, and ever since I've just been really interested in what she's doing. But I feel like um, a lot of her stuff doesn't get promoted, talked about. Actually, I do have one more thing to say about about the thing. They do, they uh, have the Mad Hatter in this. Oh, yeah. And they treat him exactly as they just as they should because the Mad Hatter sucks. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of pathetic. All right, everybody. Yeah, uh, everybody, check us out on Facebook under Retro Rocket Entertainment. You'll find all our podcasts there. And John, thank you very much, and say goodbye to the kids. Goodbye, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Blackwater, starring Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren, reteaming again for another great action pick, written by a regular reoccurring host, Chad Law. And it's going to be in theaters June 28th, video on demand, and uh, soon after it'll be on home video. Here's a trailer.
this won't go anywhere. Welcome to hell. everybody, welcome to Back in Tunes. We'll be doing another episode today. I didn't know what I'm talking about. Hey, how about I start that over again? Rick, rewind. Um, I don't know what happened there. Hey, everybody, welcome to Back in Tunes. <laughs> um, I'm not going to edit that out because I thought that was kind of funny. Um, this episode, we're going to be discussing music videos that were animated. Uh, most of the stuff's going to be retro because I feel like animated videos aren't that special anymore. I feel like you see quite a... Actually, music videos in general actually are kind of special but because of them having no budget anymore they seem to just you know farm them out to uh independent people to do animated videos instead like weird al tons of animated stuff oh god oh, pretty much that whole sequence of transformers was that damn stupid music video yeah no i was just <laughs> i was just thinking though it just seems like you know whenever he puts out an album he'll go hey um i've paid for like three of these there's 12 songs you know uh go ahead and have fun with them and whoever does the best video you know i'll, I'll pick and put it up there and becomes the official release. So these guys that have, you know, kind of an independent, uh, kind of reckless way of making a video, unlike the way the studios would make it, uh, they do it a lot cheaper. They, you know, it's pretty innovative, and also it helps Weird Al get the song out to a bigger audience. Oh, of course, yeah, definitely. But oh my God, his videos though, <laughs> even when they're not animated. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there are artists on this playlist that we have skipped. I know I should have put the White Stripes. Uh, their video was animated. Um, I could have put uh, Nine Inch Nails only, which is from the same director, I believe, and uh, a lot of that's animated. I just kind of stopped, um, and I tried to go in order, chronological order, with a few of them here that are out of order, just because I added them to the playlist, uh, which you'll see as a link on Back in Tunes as well as Retro Rock Entertainment for these videos. Uh, so basically we're going to hit play. This is like an old video, or this is an old episode. You remember how we used to do this? Like the first year, year and a half, we used to watch the videos and uh, comment on them live. Oh yeah, no. Shoot, when was the last time we did that? I think we stopped, I want to say July of 2015 when I moved. And that place had the shittiest internet. We all had to share it so I couldn't watch anything live. So we just started watching them ahead of time. And, you know, in my horrible, piss-poor way. Or Remember, for a while there, it was only stuff I could get from the library is what we discussed. It was a really bad period. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It was so, so bad. Yeah, back when I had uh, proper internet, you know, um, we could just hit play and discuss the episodes. But I also didn't think it was as tight as it should have been, which is a little concern for this episode right now is I'm not sure it's going to be a really tight play. But um, we'll see how this goes. If we get bored or something, maybe we'll just hit 
fast forward. Just skip ahead to the next video. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Also, uh, what about Michael Jackson's Leave Me Alone? Um, I forgot that was animated. Shit. You know, I put out a, a feeler to everybody for the videos that I couldn't remember, and I only got two new ones added on at the end. No, three. Um, I did forget about that. Well, you know, if it comes down to it, we'll just do another episode of this, or maybe a mini-sode. I totally forgot about that episode. That, that video. That would work. You know what we could always do? Like, the entire, um, pretty much all of Daft Punk's, uh, Discovery album. That Ooh. entire yeah. album was made into a huge animated... Yeah, there, there's a few. I mean, well, Peter Gabriel has had quite a few, and I only picked one because uh, there's uh, Sledgehammer and there's uh, Big Time and oh, yeah, Steam. Steam. Huh? Oh, yeah, Steam. Steam, yeah, that's the one that was all digital. Um, it was one of the very first digital effect videos. Oh, man, no. Yeah. I remember there was a Backstreet Boys one with tons of CGI spaceships. See, I don't know if that counts, but there's a lot of CGI animation oh. in that. Oh, larger than life? Yeah. yeah I wouldn't. Bam. <laughs> that makes you larger than life. God, when was that not on on MTV? I know that was on constantly. That's when that's when music really just started uh, getting uninteresting to me. I, there's certain eras. We might as well talk about music real quick. You and I never talk about music, and I mean both of us are pretty much open to any genre. But there's certain chunks that I enjoy more than others. I enjoy the uh, post-disco. Well, I guess disco is still going, but it's kind of like the answer to disco was the movement with New Wave and Punk in the late 70s. So, like, the debut of the Ramones till probably about 84, when I think music gets kind of shitty after that. 84, um, I don't cherish uh, hair metal or grunge the way a lot of people my age do. Um, it's post-grunge, which I get really, really excited about. So it's like that 97 uh, era, you know, like when Smash Mouth, even music got uh, happier, which everybody hates now. Everybody hates Third Eye Blind, everybody hates Smash Mouth and Lit and stuff like that. Um, for probably another decade, I think music's really fun. You know, you got, you got the dance rock and the garage, uh, the garage rock revival. Right. What was, the, what was Lit again? Oh, yeah, they're the ones who did uh, My Own Worst Enemy. Right, yeah. I like uh, emo. Yeah. I like pop punk. I have no problems with these whatsoever. Um, hip hop for me, I think the pivotal era for me is right before gangster rap. So like, probably '85 through '92 is my favorite era. But I like a lot of the independent guys that have been rising up, bringing back old school style. I like harmonies. I like uh, samples. Or just like with the, what Daft Punk did, along with um, uh, Random Access Memories, and then what Bruno Mars has done lately with the. Uh... 24 karat magic. Yeah, well, he's bringing a lot of funk into it. So yeah, I um, yeah, there's, there's some music I can't get into, but I'm not I'm not like um, a no to anything because I'll say I don't like um, R&B, but then I'll hear a few that I really like, you know, stuff like that. Um, this kind of mixes up every genre. I couldn't find really any rap videos that were animated. I'm sure there's some out there. You go, you'll, everybody will tell me a lot of this is uh, um, rock. Um, but there, there's some mixture of everything here. So I have the playlist up. If you don't get the link, it's called the animated music videos for back in tunes podcast. And, uh, Jacob, if you're ready, we'll hit play. All right. Let's hit play. Three, two, one contact. All right. So our first video here is actually, I think the very first animated video ever made. It's, uh, Elvis Costello accidents will happen. A musician that I didn't appreciate until I was much older. Oh, really? Yeah, I just, I, I I had a friend in college 
we were talking about who our favorite musicians were, and he was always kind of the eccentric one. He's the guy who showed up with leopard hair and, you know, all sorts of weird piercings. The first guy I ever knew with a piercing to his penis. <laughs> um, uh, he said his favorite musician was Elvis Costello, and the rest of us are, like, saying, like, you know, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Beastie Boys, you know, stuff that was really popular at the time. Elvis Costello, I think, was kind of on a downturn at this, uh, you know, what, that was 96, I think, when we had this discussion. So I can see where, um, you know, why he got into it because he his tastes are more eclectic. But you can see why someone my age wouldn't. I mean, you know, I didn't really deep dive into older music. I, I appreciate 70s and 80s music now, but I didn't then. Right, yeah, no, for sure. I always, I mean, at least from my parents, my dad always listened to rock and my mom always listened to whatever was on the radio. Hell, she actually introduced me to uh, Notorious B.I.G. and Tupac. Okay, that is okay. not what I expected at all. I know, surprise, surprise. Well, Big Papa was playing on the radio, you know. She liked that song. And we got into it that way. We watched <laughs> the music videos. You know, we're little kids. We're growing up on MTV. Yeah. Well, it's up. What, what up was great, though, um, this is when they had a pop-up video, like on VH1. Oh, God, I love uh, pop-up video. Oh, I wish they'd bring that back. I wish they'd bring back music videos, period. But I, I basically, MTV and VH1, even Fuse, uh, they stopped playing music a long time ago. They were more interested in TV shows. And I, it just seems strange to me. I was like, well, your point was music. It's like Cartoon Network and they started doing live action stuff. I was like, no, no, that's not why you exist. Precisely. Yeah, I know. It just, uh, I was like, wait, what the hell is this? This isn't a cartoon. This yeah. isn't even cartoony. This isn't, this isn't the Coen brothers, like freaking uh, Racing Arizona. No cartoon elements at all. Yeah. It's all a lie. Uh, so this is one of his first big hits um, uh, from 1979, directed by Annabelle Jenkel and Rocky Morton, who became infamous years later for Max Headroom and possibly the worst video game adaptation ever made, Mario Brothers. The only reason it's the worst, worse than you, Bowl, is because the prospects were so much higher. Oh, the movie. I was about to say, what was the video game? No, 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 no. These two, they, they, uh, the directors uh, came off of Max Headroom and were hired by Hollywood Pictures uh, to do the Mario Brothers movie. And, well, we all know how that went. They ignored anything from the actual world of Mario Brothers and kind of pissed on everything that everybody held dear. Confusing this. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, the casting was great. I mean, I loved uh, what, Dennis Hopper. I also loved John Leguizamo and... Let's see. Yeah, even Dennis Hopper. You just said but, Dennis Hopper. You said Dennis Hopper twice. <laughs> oh, jeez. It's uh, Sunday. I'm lazy. I don't uh, even want to think. I don't care to think. I mean, if it was something not called Mario Brothers, I think everybody would be happier with it. But it is, and you got to deal with that. There was a mythos already built, and they ignored it for the most part. Uh, yeah, I know. That's pretty much just like with uh, what happened with Dragon Ball Evolution. Yeah. That's, that's a fuck up. Okay, uh, I don't know why I have to sit through commercials for us. Sorry, everybody. You know, YouTube being whores that they are. It used to be fun Wait, and free. Yeah. Where's the skip ad button? <laughs> um, well, I guess we can just skip that. Yeah, I don't yes, know. Please. Some of these commercials yeah. go on for eight hours. Okay, second video is... <sighs> but... Aha! <clears throat> <laughs> uh -huh. Oh, God. I don't think I've ever seen that one. Enlighten me, Michael. <laughs> well, the band... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to put my... I took a big drink of water just so I was going to... I was going to say, aha, and I went, ah, um, <laughs> So this song was released um, 
prior to this music video existing, it was actually a flop. And basically the, uh, I don't think it even got released in America. I think it was just European. Like it got played, but didn't get a lot of attention. And the studio, what do you call it? The label, I guess, is when, it, when it's music. The label um, decided to put some more faith into it. They they did a video for it and they kind of re-recorded the song, I think, with a faster beat. And there you got this classic video here, the one that captured everybody's attention in 1985. Aha, take on me. I just, it's truly fascinating. It's all rotoscope, uh, you know, classic Disney uh, technique for uh, doing animation, just basically filming the person live and then drawing over it. Uh, Ralph Bakshi, of course, notorious for this style. Right. Oh, man, but still, it is a very beautiful music video. And, again, I'm so glad that, you know, the song did come back and was just like, uh, like one of the best hits of the 80s. I mean, it was also used for the uh, trailer for uh, Ready Player One. Um, it's also in Basketball. Uh, it was re-recorded by Real Big Fish, uh, so a Scott oh, yeah, cover. That's right. It's a lot of fun. Um, here's the interesting thing. The director of this is also the director of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. Nice! Yeah, Steve oh, Barron man. would do this, and he also did that 96 uh, Pinocchio movie with uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Taylor, Taylor Thomas. Thomas, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I only watched it because my grandmother loved Well, my grandmother loved Pinocchio and Snow White. I've never seen side. it, yeah. I've never seen the Pinocchio movie. I've seen the original animated, but I've never seen the live-action version. I, I, there's another version with that guy from uh, Life is Roberto Beautiful. Roberto Benigni? Yeah, Roberto Benigni. I heard it was an epic disaster. Like, Have you seen Roberto Benigni since Pinocchio? Nope. Well, actually, no. Uh, that uh, that interpretation of Pinocchio is, I think, the original, uh, like based off the actual book. Because in the real story of Pinocchio, Pinocchio was a little shit. <laughs> yeah, but he wasn't a, a 45-year-old man from Italy. No, he wasn't, but it's Roberto Benigni. Yeah. I guess it's, hopefully Italy loved it. Who knows? I know that they had to re-edit oh, yeah. it big time for America, and it's still a huge flop. Oh, yeah, no, I don't doubt that. But, oh. but yeah, no, uh, Disney wanted to, uh, decided to make uh, Pinocchio like an innocent young boy just because, you know, he's young. He's just brand new. He just came into the world. He doesn't know what's what. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, no, uh so yeah, no, take on me. Like it was such a fun, upbeat song. It's like, how can you hate it? Yeah. Well, they're a one-hit wonder, aren't they? Did they ever have another hit? Yeah. No, they didn't. I know that they did the theme song to *The Living Daylights*, which was the first of the Timothy Dalton James Bond movies. And that's about it that I remember from them. Which is kind of a shame. I guess sometimes you just can't get another hit, no matter how hard you try. I don't know if their albums are any good though. I've only ever heard this song and uh, the the Bond song. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, no, that's all I knew that this is what they had. Yeah. And then there was, like, a the for the trailer for Ready Player One, this, like, big old uh, symphony, like, remix kind of thing to it. And it was actually pretty badass. <laughs> uh, next video here is Harlem Shuffle, Rolling Stones. Now, everybody credits Ralph Bakshi for this one. That is not true. Uh, it is a co-direction. So John Kay does the animation. and I uh, figured and uh, Ralph Bakshi did the live action. So he designs the set pieces. So the set pieces definitely look like Ralph Bakshi art. And then he directed the live action, you know, the recording part. Uh, and then the animation came in later with John Kay doing the character designs. That's why it looks so much like Ren and Stimpy. Yeah. 
Uh, and they would have a close relationship after this. Uh, John Kay would do the Mighty Mouse cartoon that was in, uh, I think it was on CBS, 87 or 88. Kind of the revival of the character. A lot of fun. Uh, very controversial at the time. Episodes were banned or cut. And uh, Wow. Yeah, you and I, he, he's kind of, I mean, clearly right now he's extremely controversial. Probably in a load of shit where he might end up in jail. Um you can't oh, John de- yeah, you can't deny, though, his talent. He's just kind of fucked up. He would skirt with um, FCC regulations constantly. I mean, that's why he was fired from Ren and Stippy is because he was doing shit like that. Uh, basically, I believe if it, it goes from this music video to him doing uh, Mighty Mouse, and then he did the Beanie and Cecil revival, which is amazing, which I don't think you've ever seen. And then there was a gap where he didn't want to play with the networks anymore, and then he got the chance to do Ren Stimpy with Nickelodeon. They kind of left him alone for a little bit, and then they're like, oh, there's a lot of money to be made, and that's when you get in trouble. It's almost better if Ren Stimpy was just a cult hit instead of a phenomenon. For John K., yes, sadly it was a hit, and he's like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, now it's all about merchandising. Now they got to protect their assets, so that's when they started scrutinizing heavily, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, editing, editing, he was taking forever, so they eventually fired his ass, uh, I think he ended up doing a show for MTV, The Mighty Grunts or something. The Brothers Grunt? The Brothers Grunt, um, which was terrible. That was a huge flop. And then didn't come back until years later with, uh, this is so obscure. I don't know if anybody knows what I'm going to talk about here, but there was a website. Actually, it still exists. Uh, a website called Icebox. And this is around 99, 2000. They were debuting independent animation. Real short stuff, you know, like three-minute cartoons, but guys from, you know, straight out of college or, or, or just on the outskirts of animation doing these short little cartoons, which most of them were fun. I mean, just their hard-drinking Lincoln's probably my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Again, I'm just mesmerized by this video. I mean, fucking Mac, Mick Jagger, no matter what age, he could still get yeah. any girl or guy he yeah, wants. Yeah, he's still doing this. He's still doing those moves at like 75, and people were just like, yeah, it's Mick Jagger. He can do whatever he wants. If anybody else does it, it's embarrassing. Yeah, I know. It's like, gosh, that's hence the song moves like Jagger. I mean, shit. Adam Levine just might have him, but my God, again, this whole uh, period piece, you know, with this huge, like, you know, like cartoonish background, something yeah. out of a comic strip. It's just so beautiful to look at. This is a cover song. Um, I can't remember who sang it, um, but I listened to it recently, and two things surprised me. First off, the original version is really slow, and it's not funky or fun, um, even though it was a hit, apparently. Um, I mean, the Rolling Stones really just pumped it up and made it a lot more entertaining. But the very beginning of the first Harlem Shuffle are the horns that play at the very beginning of Jump Around. You know that bump, bump, bump. Um, oh yeah gosh I know I realized that. I was like wait a minute um, I was like wait did Michael accidentally pick the wrong song no he didn't <laughs> yeah. and of course there's uh, Heath Richards at the end smoking a cigarette not hopefully sober he's just not <laughs> this is right before I think the Rolling Stones split I feel like a year later is when they broke up and then Mick Jagger started Steel Wheels or no no what the hell is it called Mick Jagger and Fuck, I can't remember. I know Mick Jagger and uh, Keith Richards were kind of on the outs for a little bit. And they had that one big hit, uh, Dancing in the Street with David Bowie. You know, that was Mick Jagger's, like, <laughs> on his own. And then they split up. And then Keith Richards, I think his band was called the Fabulous Winos or something like that. It was a weird period for Rolling Stones. And they got back together and everybody was fine. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, gosh. they still, Again, they just never go away. That's, I, a good, that's kind of a cool thing. I, w- I mean, if they showed up at Bottle Rock, I would totally go. <laughs> I, um, I won a contest my senior year, no, third year of college, um, and I ended up getting this huge vinyl banner of the Rolling Stones. I think it was for Voodoo Lounge or something, whatever it was out at that time. And I didn't want it. And everybody was like, what the fuck? Why would you want that? And I'm like, I'm not really into the Stones. And uh, I'll trade you for that. And what I got was this big coupon book for like free haircuts, free food. And I'm, I'm not regretting any of it because it was just a Rolling Stones, uh, you know, poster of sorts. And I, I had uh, food and, you know, free stuff, free video rentals to last me like the rest of the year. Oh, yeah, that's pretty awesome. Uh, next video here yeah, is, what's that? What? I was about to say uh, oh. what this video was, but you got it. You got yeah. it. <laughs> uh, Peter Gabriel, Sledgehammer, like we said, this is kind of like his, I think he only did three animated videos. He did this, Big Time, and Steam. He might have done another one, but this is the ones I know about. The um, This is directed by Ardman. Well, the animation is by Ardman. I'm not sure if the director is Ardman, but this is basically launched, that studio. So we get Wallace and Gromit funded because of this. Well, I mean, it's Peter Gabriel. I mean, he always had, like, this unique artistic vision. And since, you know, he split from Gen- – ever since he split from Genesis, he would do what he wanted to do. Yeah. And, my God, <laughs> how could you not like this video? It's so all weird, though. stop motion. After – what is – so he named all of his albums, like, two-letter words, like, us, we, so, up, stuff like that. And I feel like, for the most part, he created singles that were very, very uh, radio-friendly. And then that was like two or three songs would be radio-friendly. And then the rest of them were kind of experimentation. And then somewhere around 2000, when he did, I think it was Up, uh, he decided, first off, he's going to shave his head, he's going to paint his face blue, and that's his new thing. And then all of his music is going to be um, unradio-friendly. It's like he purposely sabotaged his career. I don't know. He did have a he did have one hell of a career. That's for damn sure. Especially like what 1992. Uh, what was that live tour he went on? Uh, I can't I'm trying remember. To remember. But that yeah, that was a big one. Well, he was always pushing the next thing in in, in music videos and technology. You know, he was always like embracing digital and stuff like that before anybody else was, and, and new ways of doing concerts. So uh, he was always kind of like a science fiction forward kind of guy. Um, I the one thing that's weird about him is that he did the music for a very obscure TV show that I adored that was syndicated. It was called Space Hunter, and a uh, real low-budget bounty hunter in space taking jobs to make money, but the money is just to fund his trip because he's traveling through the galaxy trying to find his son who was kidnapped. He doesn't know who took him, and that's his main goal, but he has to take these side journeys you know, in order to get enough funding to keep his search going. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, it wasn't... Very weird. It's a great concept. The first season is so low budget that nothing really happens. The second season's much better. They had they had like more CGI and wire stunts and a bigger cast. But Peter Gabriel did the theme song for that TV show. Yeah. Secret World. That was the tour. Oh, okay. Okay. I don't remember that one. Oh yeah, no, that happened in like what? 1994. Yeah. When did he leave Genesis? Was it in the 70s or early 80s? I think it was like what? Late 70s. Okay. Because he did maybe, what, three or four albums with them. And they had a couple hits, but I don't think it was until they split off is when everything just – it just felt right that they separated. Because Genesis, all of a sudden having Phil Collins in lead, 
uh, much more radio friendly. I mean, it's amazing how many great songs they had with them. Uh, upbeat, fun, upbeat for sure. Yeah, and then he did more pensive stuff. Um, Salisbury Hill being one of the greatest songs oh, ever. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing is, Genesis in a way comes up here later. They didn't do an animated video, but they did a, a song that was so well received that years later someone covered it as an animated video, and that'll be towards the end of our playlist. True, but they did use puppets. I can't believe we were able to talk for six minutes. Yeah, you and I have this discussion. Technically, puppets are animated. Because this is the loophole where I find it. People say, well, it has to be drawn in order to be animation. I was like, well, that's not true because computers have taken over. Okay, well, computers have to be... Well, what about claymation? Uh, well, claymation is three-dimensional. I was like, well, then puppets. Puppets are not able to move on their own, so therefore they're animated by someone else. I think they... Yeah, I, I believe they count as animation. Practical animation? Yeah, I don't... Yeah, yeah. Practical effects mixed with animation. But, I mean, that's basically what... But what uh, maybe it's because people consider it has to be one frame at a time. But I think with computer mm. technology right now, they've even surpassed that. Where I don't know how I don't I really do not understand how computer animation is made. Do they just point yeah. one? You know, do they want this drawing and this drawing, and basically uh, the computer anticipates that next drawing and moves the character in that way. I don't know, because they used to call those the uh, the in betweens when you would hand draw them, but it's completely different now with computers. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know. Well, it is kind of hard to uh, it is pretty hard to describe like what you call puppetry. Well, maybe it is uh, <laughs> puppetry. That's just what it is. <laughs> uh, Weird Al, of course, lots of animated videos, and he would do an animated parody of this one, um, Beverly, Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> yeah, like same company and everything except you know the main character looks like him. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it's still so enjoyable. This is from the same director as uh, Take On Me. It's from Steve Barron. Um, animation. The CGI was done by uh, Mainframe, which would become the company behind uh, Reboot. Hence, and that's the world that takes place within Reboot. Yeah. Mainframe. Um, mm -hmm. And the live mm -hmm. action yeah. stuff was yeah. rotoscope. So, you know, a lot of new techniques brought in mixed with classic techniques. But still so visually amazing. My God. <laughs> I know the first time I saw this, I didn't know what CGI was, even though I'm pretty sure I had seen um, Last Starfighter by this point and Tron, and it just completely blown away by this. It's like, what am I watching? Characters and they're, they're like cartoons, but they're not cartoons. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I know. It was a pretty weird concept. But then again, I, having seen Roger Rabbit, you know, growing up, so I kind of got the uh, blend of like live action and animation into like yeah. one world. Yeah, but of course, you're, the audience doesn't know this, is that you're a lot younger than me. You were born after Roger Rabbit came out, so you've already been conditioned to that world, whereas I hadn't True. seen it yet. So, you know, it'd be three more years until Roger Rabbit, and this just blew my mind. Exactly. I know, it's like you're always surprised uh, by, like, almost, you know, everything that'll come out within the future generation, you know, at least their uh, form of entertainment. You know what's amazing about Dire Straits is that these guys are clearly like either in their 40s or headed towards their 40s, and yet they were huge. And, and it seemed like the 80s was more open to older people being in music. Like Aretha Franklin had a big comeback. You know, a lot of these bar bands that had been touring forever finally broke through, like Huey Lewis, um, Jake Giles. Tina Turner, she came Yeah, back. Tina Turner had a big comeback. I feel like the 80s was more embracing of older music. I feel like there was a lot of that blues, like 60s blues influence and 50s uh, rockabilly in a lot of the 80s oh. music. 
Oh, and then the doo-wop music. Oh, that's def- That's all Huey Lewis for sure. And that oh, was, definitely. Again, People forget that. Such happy, such happy music. My God, how could you not like that? Well, there was a fabulous Thunderbirds. I mean, the guy uh, was older and he was head overweight and he was balding. Yet they had two huge hits. Uh, Genesis. I mean, look at that. Phil Collins was in his probably his forties and he was like little and he was balding. Yet phenomenal. It just seems like once the nineties came around, things started to change and people weren't embracing older musicians anymore. No, I think it's like uh, people want to blame death metal for it. <laughs> I don't know. Here's the other thing: is this makes me sound old, but do kids even listen to rock and roll music anymore? I mean, do they even listen to metal? I feel like even, you know, every genre with guitars is dead, even pop punk. Everything now is like folksy. It's, I don't even consider that rock. Ugh. Oh, yeah, like the Lumineers. Actually, I like the Lumineers. Uh, I, just, I can't stand it. I think it's a weak genre. I just, it doesn't have that drive that I need. Um, it is. Imagine... Yeah, no, it's just not as, uh, yeah. it's just not as uh, publicized, I will say that. But metal is still definitely around. Yeah. That's, but, I don't think that's going to die. Even yeah. Tenacious D even said, they tried to kill the metal. <laughs> they failed as they were smite to the ground. Uh, next video here is Opposites of Track with Paula Abdul with MC Scat Cat, which, if I remember correctly, you had no idea what I was talking about when I mentioned this last year. I didn't. I really didn't. But this... I'm glad I do now. I mean, I've always liked Paula Abdul. Yeah. She's wonderful. People just kept saying still, that she couldn't sing. I remember this being a big complaint around 89, 90. Everybody's like, she can't sing for shit. Why is she such a big star? Okay, so she doesn't have, like, Mariah Carey's voice, but who does? Um, and the funny thing is, I don't think Mariah Carey was even around at the time, so it must have been the next year or two with her next album, people were saying this. But uh, during 88, 89, 90, the two people that were going at it constantly were Janet Jackson and Paul Abdul. Yes, there were some other competitors, but they were always lesser than. They only had like one or two hits. This album was a phenomenon, and it also came out at the same time as Rhythm Nation with Janet Jackson, and I swear they were just hopscotching each other on the top charts. Yeah, I know. It was almost like a... Well, actually, she uh, Paula Abdul did work with the Jacksons on the Torture music video. Yeah. She was the choreographer. Well, I think, I think uh, she's actually in one of Janet Jackson's early videos from like 86 or 87. I mean, not that they were like... Uh, ang- you know, fighting each other. It's kind of the way Schwarzenegger and Stallone were. They were kind of friendly about their rivalry, but there was always a rivalry trying to one-up each other. Right, yeah. Just like a friendly competition between the two. Yeah. I still see... And she was... Go ahead. Wasn't she with Emilio Estevez at the time, Paul Abdul? Uh, I'm not sure if she had w- been with him yet, but I know that it was soon afterwards where they got married. I think he's even in one of her videos. I think it's called Rush Rush or something like that. But... This ah. album had, I think, four or five really big hits, like top ten, whatever. And um, uh, Straight Up is still one of my favorite songs. I will say, no, my God, this is just, again, choreographed perfectly. And then again, uh, God, with Paula Abdul, shit. That's like the best that you can get. Her, Shakira, even, um, oh, God, why am I blanking? Rosie Perez and J-Lo, all yeah. fantastic. The, uh, uh... The raps were written by someone famous, and I was actually surprised by this. And I don't, I don't believe it's performed by him because I was looking at it. It was from some team, uh, like a wild pair, I think, is the team that did the raps. But it was written by Romany Malco from Forty Year Old Virgin. Oh shit! Really? Yeah, he wrote the raps for this. Damn. <laughs> well, I well seeing that that uh, seeing that actor, he's the one who um, he played Jay right in Forty Year Old Virgin. Uh, pretty sure. I haven't seen the movie in a while. Yeah, okay, good. 
Well, I was about to say, like, seeing him, like, you know, the way he danced and performed, I'm like, okay, this guy definitely was, like, a choreographer or a performer somewhat. But, yeah, no, this is such a fun music video to watch. Yeah, and this wouldn't exist without the success of Roger Rabbit. It's got the old-school look to it, um, not just with the animation, but the set pieces look like it's straight out of the 40s. Oh, definitely, too. That dark purple skylight gives yeah. it a... Um... Dick Tracy look. Oh, for sure. That's what I was trying to th- I can't believe I was blinking on Dick Tracy. <laughs> In general, this period of time, God, I wish you were a little bit older because you would have enjoyed how amazing it was. Around 87, um, America became completely fascinated with the 20s through the 40s. And, you know, we got the Untouchables, we got Roger Rabbit, we got Dick Tracy, Batman had that retro look to it, this video, uh, Rocketeer, Mm -hmm. The Shadow. And then, you know, by the time The Phantom came around, yeah, The Phantom, by that time, everybody was just sick of it. Um, which is longer than most of these kind of interests happen, but people are really interested in, uh, you know, pulp cartoons and comics. I mean, actually, I should take it back even further because it was like the, the early 80s when we had Flash Gordon, Bread the Star, uh, Tarzan, a lot of that kind of revival stuff. Zorro. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, God. I'm re- that's, oh, yeah. Zorro with Antonio Banderas. Oh, that was great. Uh, well, that no, was there, there was, a, there was a, a movie in 82 called Zorro the Gay Blade. Um, which was popular. Uh, oh, that's right. Oh, my God. Oh, God, I remember that. Wasn't it like a – I thought it was a parody or – Yeah, it was kind of a parody, but it was still a love letter to the genre. It just found ways to poke fun of it, you know, kind of like Robin Hood Man tights is. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, okay, I have this... to credit – Chris Bailey was the director of Opposites Attract, who surprisingly does not have that big of a resume. Um, he basically did film and animation for a lot of stuff, directed a few things. I'm trying to remember right now what else he directed. Well, we'll talk about this a while. I looked that up. Um, this, this one was a bit of a surprise for you, wasn't it? Why? Oh, because I don't even think you knew that uh, that this uh, music video was out. I mean, this was uh, during the huge uh, success of Batman Forever. No, we are on Girlfriend with Matthew Sweet. What are you on? Did you skip ahead of me? Oh, sure. I, I think I accidentally skipped the button. Oh, my bad. <laughs> Whoops. Didn't mean to do that. <laughs> Uh, okay so girlfriend this is one that when i first saw it it, i've never seen a video use footage from something else to repurpose it to uh you know it's kind of like a sampling instead of a sound clip they're using a video clip which i think is the first time it's ever been done oh wow oh i should have known this chris the director of opposites of track is actually from up here he's from portland um, he directed the Clerks um, animated series. He did Kim Possible. Oh, uh, he's doing oh, wow. Blazing Samurai this year. Um, was also the director of animation for Star Chaser, The Legend of Orin, and Oliver and Company. Oh wow! Oh, Damn, actually, dude, that's a huge, that's yeah. a huge repertoire right there. Actually, he's got a lot more than that. He's got Little Mermaid, Rescues Down Under, Lion King, Hercules, Garfield the Movie, Alvin the Chipmunks, uh, one and two, and then Hop. He did uh, CGI animation for. That's amazing. But yeah, this song right here, Girlfriend, what, what's this anime from? It is from is Interstellar 555. No, it's not. Wrong thing. Sorry. Space Adventure That's Cobra, definitely. the movie. <laughs> Space Adventure Cobra. Okay, where did this... Uh, was it where, was it well-received or not? Uh, this was actually a big hit. Oh, the movie? I don't know. Oh, I never heard of it. I don't think it was even released in America at the time. Um, it was probably afterwards that it got imported. Um, no, I don't know how Matthew Sweet even saw this to make it into a video, but um, this was his first big hit. This album was huge, and he was never 
a top 10 kind of guy, but he stuck around for a long time with uh, kind of like a cult, you know, college rock radio thing going for him. So he would have an album or two with a couple of decent hits. Um, and I know that he was in that band at the end of Austin Powers with the lead singer of the Bangles. Oh, Ming T? Is, is that what it's called? I never knew the name of the yeah. band. Okay. Um, so, and then, then, uh, he went off with her, the Susanna Hoffs and, uh, formed a new band where they just did like covers of classic songs in the sixties and seventies. He looks really bad. I mean, he looks bad, bad. I, he's put on so much weight and I, I'm afraid that he's going to die. My God, I'm sorry. <laughs> but shit. I, I will have to say though, um, whatever this an- the anime is, what space force, uh, Cyber Cobra. Mm-hmm. What's it called again? Space, Space Adventure Cobra. Space Adventure Cobra. That's what it is. Yeah. No. Th- this uh, uh, this makes me want to watch that movie now. Yeah, I'm curious about it too. Um, uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. I will say that uh, there's particular, particularly some uh, retro wave artists on YouTube that take anime, like some old anime movies and cartoons and stuff, and use it for their uh, music videos. Yeah, a lot of them are actually fan-made. They're taking the synth music yeah, and the yeah. uh, videos and, you know, blending them together. But some of them blend in really well. I think they got the concept from this. Let me know when you get to the next video, the YouTube video, because we got out of alignment. Okay. I will in just a second. Okay. It's such a – it is. It, oh, my gosh. I really want to watch that anime now. Okay. Matthew Sweet. While we're waiting here, um, everybody check us out on Patreon under Retro Rocket Entertainment. That's the main network for all our podcasts. If you want to support us, even a buck a month would be helpful. Um, Got a lot of broken down equipment. Uh, A lot of debts (laughs) I got to pay off, and I'm having trouble paying my fees to load up the podcast. So I'm getting fewer episodes a month. Um, Not to beg, but it would be nice if someone gave us a little, little thank you, thank you. Right. Oh, man. Okay, so I'm I'm there. I'm okay, there right now. You too. Hold me, thrill me, kiss me, kill me. Right? Is kill me part of it, or it just stops to kiss me? Oh no, it's the kill me. Okay, the kill thought... me part. Okay, so the video I'm seeing here is weird because it edits in stuff from Batman Begins. Is that the one that you see? And Dark Knight. This, yeah, yeah, yeah this must have been original, a fan edit. Original... Yeah, it was. Hey, the original video is a little hard to find though. Okay. But um, yeah, no, it was you know Batman Forever was like a huge hit. You know, uh, during that year, it made the most money that year, and the songs too from the entire soundtrack were just you know, fucking so well received. What you got? You two, you had Smash Mouth, Brandy, yeah, a lot of great names, and of course Seal. Seal was the one who took the cake, but this music video was just so badass to me. I love seeing the animation. I love seeing the clips from the movie. Oh, yeah, everybody's I mean, worried. Was- everybody's worried after the second one made a hundred million dollars less. You know, and, and parents were put off by it. You know, basically removing Tim Burton from it, removing Danny Elfman. A lot of those elements that were there for the first two movies were gone. Tim Burton got producer credit. I didn't know how involved he was, but putting Joel Schumacher's hand saved the franchise financially, but fucked the franchise creatively. I thought it went. I I think Batman Forever is almost unwatchable. Well. I don't know. I, that one I could still watch. That one I find fun. I thought Val Kilmer did a pretty good job, but as far as it goes for the direction they went in, he uh, Joel Schumacher definitely wanted to go more poppy, a little bit more nipples. Friendly. And then finally, <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> the 
think of it like, you know, uh, it called, considered it a work of art, you know, like the Statue of David and stuff like that. So, like, why not put nipples on the bat? Yeah, work of art. Give it that to make him look more human, you know, because, you know, he's an actual man. He is a human being. So he would have nips, too. Yeah, stupid, <laughs> stupid. Nipples wouldn't show know, through rubber. It's just dumb. Um, the, what pisses me off most about this is one thing and one thing only. I am pissed about Toothface being a cackling idiot. You already have a comedic villain. Why have two? It makes no sense. Exactly. Oh, no. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I will say this. Jim Carrey definitely embodied Frank Gorshin, for sure. Yeah. That's what I felt Yeah, when it's I just Tommy Lee Jones. And he was asked to do it wrong. He should have played it straight up. But the point of Two-Face is that he was a handsome man who was destroyed. So casting Tommy Lee Jones, who looks like an old baseball man, was a terrible idea. Right. Also, um, what really was screwed up was that Billy Dee Williams was was going to play uh, Two-Face. Yes. Yes. Bugs me to no end and of that. That's why. Yeah, no, and that's why um, Billy Dee Williams uh, took the part of Harvey Dent in the first Batman. He wanted to play Two Face. He knew there'd be a setup for him. Yep, it's a but real, real punch in the nuts. It is. Yeah, I know it's screwed up. I would have loved to have seen that. Actually, there was a pitch for you know um, 1989 Batman continuation. You know how they did with the 60s uh, Batman? They did a comic book series to continue that. Yeah, yeah. During I think the yeah they were pitching that with the 1989 Batman about what happened after Batman Returns. Ooh, but I love that idea. Sadly, it, it, I know it didn't set uh, it, like. It didn't get the go for the publication, so I'm like, what the hell? Marf. I would have bought Marf. that. DC doesn't know what it's doing anyway right now. I, their movies, they don't know what they're doing. The comics, they don't know what they're doing, even though apparently they're selling well. Only the TV shows seem to be going right. Well, I will say this. The Rebirth, I don't know, is finding a lot of success, that's for sure. And the Batman metal and all that and all these new um, interpretations coming out. Yeah. But with their movies, they're getting on the right track by bringing in Walter Hamada. This guy knows story and you know, movies and how to, you know, heck, even with, with uh, he was the producer on uh, all their latest horror movies like Insidious, Conjuring, It, and my God, people were just so enveloped in the stories, even though they were horror movies. Yeah. So uh, this guy's, you know, bringing him on board was a great idea. Uh, this video is um, directed by Kevin Godley. I thought I remembered what he was from. I can't. I think he was supposed to. Yeah, Kevin Godley was a musician who would do videos on the side. In most part, he would just do small videos for uh, you know bands from his area, you know, bands he would tour with, and then broke through around 93, I think. And that's when, and there's another guy in here that was like that too. I want to say it was Nick Duncan, who both, they're both musicians, and uh, ended up becoming video directors later. Wow. Still, I thought it was a very wonderful music video. Yeah, this Especially is... Especially like at the end with the whole duality sequence, you know. Yeah. You know, the... Devil guy ripping himself apart, and it's Batman and Riddler, and Batman and Riddler, and back to Devil guy and Bono again. They did a really great job. Um, this is when you know U2 was doing a lot of the Zoo, uh, Zoo TV, which I thought was a bullshit, fucked up period of U2. U2 really strayed away from being like the blue collar Irish uh, band that spoke to the people. This is when they got eccentric and weird, and I cannot stand that mid-90s. It wasn't until, I think, 2000, 2001 where they finally remembered, hey, people like us for this kind of thing, you know, anthem rock. And uh, Oh, yeah, with the, um, oh, gosh, was it the Elevation album? 
That might have been it. I just remember them having a huge comeback, and that album sold very well. People were like, oh, are they going to go the way of R.E.M.? Remember in the late 90s, R.E.M. and U2 were starting to fall apart. They were, they were trying too many experimental things, not just making good songs. Right. And oh, yeah, no. They, no longer selling platinum. They were just starting to fail horribly. Oh, no. What was that? Um, I'm trying to think. It was uh, right after, It was the album after Joshua Tree in the early 90s. Uh, one was on it. Yeah, I can't. Along with uh, Mysterious Ways. Can't remember what the name of that one is. Unforgettable Fire, maybe? No, that, that was probably earlier. Yeah. I know this. No, the 91 album's good. It's the 93 one where they started just experimenting with... And he wore, he wore those fly glasses. He looked like an idiot. Hmm. I don't know. Well, anyway, this music video here... Yeah, this... Baby, that's what it's called. Um, what? That YouTube album. Oh, Okay. Um, One More Time by Daft Punk. It was uh, using footage from Interstellar 555. Got it right this time. Um, also, an unbelievably beautiful animation. Um, even though I don't care for anime, I mean, we'll probably do an anime art episode or two um, here in the future because there's a few that I do like. Cowboy Bebop I really enjoy. Um, uh, Appleseed. There's a couple others. What's the, what's the one with a kid who's like a thief? He's not a kid, but I guess he looks like a kid. Uh, oh. There's a Full Metal Alchemist. Wolf. Lobo. I think it's like a wolf or something like that. That was part of his name. Lupin. Lupin the Third. Lupin the Third. Yes. Lupin I like that third. one a That's lot. What it is. I love that one. Um, this is when Daft Punk really broke out. I mean, no one had ever heard of them. And this is when Electronica was really starting to become like something more than just at uh, raves. This was uh, getting played on TV. It was getting the you know top 100 charts for Billboard. You know this is when Moby broke out. This is when uh, the Dust Brothers. What, what are some other bands? The Chemical Brothers. Um, there's one that we listen to all the time. Fatboy Slim. You know that's when they. Oh did. yeah. Yeah, for like four or five years, Electronica was huge. The only band that seems to be still around, you know, making waves, is Daft Punk. So 20 years later, they're still a household name. They're still charting hits. I still think their peak moment is doing the soundtrack for Tron Legacy. That's uh, their finest album. Oh my god, yes. My problem with Electronica is that it's repetitive. So repetitive. But Daft Punk was smart in that they would use lyrics every once in a while to get a, a good single. I, Fatboy Slim did that yeah, a little bit too. Out. Yeah. True. Also, yeah, Daft Punk, especially with, um, I think, their latest album back in 2013, well, which was from re released in 2013, Random Access Memories, they took it they got out of their comfort zone and decided to do something else. Yeah. But, like, borrowing a lot – and bringing Nile Rodgers on board, too, which was great. He was one of their biggest influences, especially when it came to playing guitar. And it it was a fucking amazing album. My God. Like, people were – you know, and when it was uh, announced at Coachella that year, people were, like, freaking out. And then the Grammys come up. You know, they took album of the year. They took all the big awards Ooh, that usually they... all these big pop people take did they accept the award in costume because no one's ever seen their face as far as oh, I know. they always do yes yeah. they they do they accept them in costume they don't speak they they, be, they really become this persona uh, that they're actual robots and they don't speak unless it's through their music yeah well it also it helps uh give them a life they have the money in the career but they don't get hounded yes of course <laughs> oh my god and there's some pretty cool helmets too oh my gosh i want one i want one of those helmets <laughs> oh my god this is a long ass video do you want to fast oh no it's almost to the end anyway so I'll just shut my pile um yeah 
I had no idea Interstellar 555 was its own thing. I thought these, this anime, all, this entire sequence, all those music videos were made just for this uh, album. Uh, do, you, do you remember the song that came after this, Around the World, where they just repeated the same fucking thing over and over oh. and over? Oh, Around the World was the what kit was uh, their first big hit, Daft Punk. This came out. It came out years before. Oh, did it? Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, but this is the song that plays at like almost every New Year's. This is like the song that still gets used. Okay, skipping ahead. Oh, stupid commercial. Yeah. Recycling video. Well, I, <laughs> I really, I really do. This Sometimes I'd even add in my own dialogue because you know that's all it is. It's just them singing. Yeah. Just like at the last moment when the fat guy gets a drink, he's like, oh, shit. God fucking damn it. Push the button. Nope. You get to fall asleep. <laughs> uh, Gorillas, another one of those where we could pick their whole, you know, filmography and discuss it. But this is the first breakout hit. Oh, God. Really discovering that world. Unbelievably good design. Uh, animation is oh, flash-based, so, I mean, it's really limited movements, but it's kind of the point. Um... So Jamie Hewlett designed the characters. Jamie Hewlett, uh, if you don't know, is famous for doing Tank Girl, one of the most underrated comics, and you know, actually a pretty damn good movie, and gets a lot of grief. Oh wow! Yeah, no, just coming back, it does bring back a lot of memories. I remember what uh, Living in Hercules, like when I first uh, when I first saw this, and I thought it was like the coolest fucking thing. And then of course they just released a new music video recently. Uh, I think it takes place in Venice Beach, and it's them like interacting with the real world, and Jack Black's in it. No kidding. Yeah, no, it's like, it's really fun. I heard they I had, had a new album, but I wasn't paying attention because it looked like they were done in 2009, and uh, you know they put out a Greatest Hits collection. And I was like, well, when you put out a Greatest Hits collection, you're usually finished. And uh, you know he went back to doing Blur albums, um, you know focusing on Blur instead of Gorillas, and I was like, I guess that experiment's over with. But yeah, I guess they've mm -hmm. had two albums out since then. Right. But um, this latest album, you know, uh, what's his name? Ace from the Gang, Green Gang, and Powerpuff Girls. He's the new member of Gorillas while Murdoch's in jail. Huh. <laughs> I guess there's some, like, little fictional uh, backstory that they gave to yes. Murdoch, and he did some fucked up shit and killed people. Now he's in jail. Now Ace is part of the gang. It's <laughs> pretty fucking cool. <laughs> uh, of course, uh, homage to all things uh, good, bad, and the ugly with sound clips, and uh, you know it's called Clint Eastwood, but it's also a love letter to like everything of movies from that era, you know, monster movies, Italian zombie flicks, uh, you know, it's a little bit of science fiction thrown in, um, a, a thriller uh, that's thrown in there too. There's a, this is a really oh definitely. Uh, I remember being just absolutely captivated by this video when it first debuted. And rediscovering Del the Funky Homo Sapien, who I knew from uh, probably about eight years earlier, he had a minor hit with uh, Mr. Bobolina, Mr. Dob, Mr. Bob Dobolina, which was a big hit. Bob Dobolina. Yeah, for us and, and my family, me and my sister would quote that all the time. But it's hard to say, Mr. Bob Dobolina. Uh, okay. Right, Miss Mr. Uh, Mr. Dobolina, Mr. Bob Dobolina. I'm going to have to look that up when I get the chance. Yeah, that was his first hit. It was, uh, we caught it like at 11 o'clock at night on uh, MTV. We're like, what the fuck is this? It's amazing. Wow. Yeah, no, I'll definitely look it up. Okay, so Bob Dabalina, you said. Yeah, well, look up any of Del the Funky Hopus, Homo Sapiens albums. They're really intricate, and there's always a theme to them. They don't play by the normal rap rules. They don't talk about bling. They don't talk about girls and boats and cars. 
it's just like this weird layered universe that he's been planning now for 25 years. And uh, it's definitely challenging hip-hop. And I can see why, you know, uh, well, I can't remember the lead singer of Blur. I can't remember for some reason, but why he would team up with him. And they would have a single like every album that had a rap track, but I think it's the only time they worked with him. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I didn't. Even, I can't even remember Blur. Did they do a particular uh, song that I would have heard? Song number two. Woohoo! <laughs> Don't you remember that? They I'll used, have to look that up. They used it in this. No, 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 no. You know it. It was a huge hit. It was uh, uh, used in the uh, trailer for Starship Troopers. I got my boat checked. Oh, da, 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 that's da, right. Da, da, okay. Yeah, and then uh, Boyfriends and Girlfriends was a decent size hit for them. Coffee and tea. I think it was called Coffee and Tea. Um, they had a three or four like decent sized hits, but it's gorillas that really blew up and found a new audience for them. So they would do live shows. The band would play. Oh, yeah. The band would play, and then they would have like these screens up front with the animation. Oh, okay. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, wait, no, that's right. They did. You know, you know what I found out? Like in the latest music video, Noodles is actually a girl. Oh, you didn't know that? Wow. No, I didn't for the longest time. It's like, Noodle's a freaking, you know, uh, like a unisex kind of name. And it's a young little Japanese child. How can I fucking tell? I I missed a video on my list. I didn't write it down. Uh, this is Effort Gently <laughs> by Tenacious D, directed by John Kerry ah. again. Um, yeah. A really oh, short Humility. one. That's the new song. Yeah. Uh, this album is truly one of the greatest albums on the planet every song is truly memorable um it's sad they waited so long i mean yes there was a movie but the soundtrack was essentially the same thing as their first album with maybe like three new songs and then you know you had to wait till like what was it 2011 for a new album and it was okay it, but it wasn't anywhere nearly as epic as this first one boy this video is filthy <laughs> yeah it is but i will say the animation's very clean yeah well it's flash animation it's john k uh, so that's his line style. Um, <laughs> this album, my God, I remember repeating this. Uh, uh, do you eat my snizzle? Do you eat my fucking snizzle? Who you left me in there, man? Inward singing. And it's like, that just sounds like you're just inhaling as you sing. No, it's not, you fucking piece of shit, you stupid cock ass. <laughs> or, or cock push-ups. Well, how many do you need to do? Well, really, only one. <laughs> Oh, oh, God. Into, oh, oh man, but uh, Pick of Destiny, that was such a great, yeah. <laughs> that was such a hilarious fucking movie. That movie was a huge <laughs> flop, too. It just, I mean, yes, it did seem like it was for a very particular audience, but I really thought it was going to do more than what, like, what is it, $12 million at the box office? Not much. What? Oh. Yeah, it was a big Damn. flop. I remember when they were on Saturday Night Live. My God, that was such an epic performance. But, you know, Dave Grohl played drums on that album. And I just it's it oh, sounds right. so different than the second one, which I don't think I don't think he was a part of. Oh wait, he played the devil in the movie, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, Riga go oh, go go Riga go go. Oh yeah, he is gonna. There is gonna be a sequel to Pick a Destiny, though. Oh sure, there will be. Sure. Oh no, there is. It was no, it's been announced. All right, well we'll see what happens. Well, I hear a lot of things get announced. The Crow remake was announced like six years ago. It still hasn't. It's not gonna happen. Oh. Yeah, no, it's not because Jason Momoa is no longer going to be a part of it. Yeah. 
Uh, I think they all left. Oh, God, I want to talk about Tenacious D more, but we are on to Pearl Jam, Do the Evolution, which is a Todd McFarlane video. This is after the one that he did for Korn. Uh, what was the one he did for Korn? Is that the bullet that was flying around? The, you know, like the, the weight of a bullet. fuck was that song called? The pot of May. Is it Freak on a Leash? Yeah. Okay. That's what it is. But yeah, no, I wondered why this animation looked familiar. I'm like, what the hell? Why can I not name this? No, oh, you know, I mean, and it looks just like the Spawn cartoon to a T. Yeah. Absolutely uh, fantastic. The, the actual director, I should say, is I don't want to give all credit to Todd McFarlane. He did the design work, but it was Kevin Altieri uh, that did the direction. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that he did this time, like Freak on a Leash, uh, I think they also did the uh, Disturbed video that comes up here in a little bit. Um, but also, of course, Spawn. Uh, I see they announced that uh, Spawn's finally coming back after, you know, Todd McFarlane saying, oh, I'm going to do a low-budget R-rated version. You know, he said it for like 20 years. Uh, they're finally going ahead with it, and Bloomhouse is producing with uh, Jamie Foxx's uh, Spawn. Yeah, no, I actually, I mean, I like Jamie Foxx. He can actually pull it off. He's a great actor. Yeah, I really miscast, though, as Electro. Yeah, sadly. I don't know. I thought, you know, bringing in the Electro character was pretty awesome. Yeah, it's However, just, again, they made him a way... stuttering weirdo, and I thought that was a strange uh, way to approach a character who was supposed to be an idiot. Psychotic yeah, that's idiot. that's true. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You blame the studios for that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That movie's messed up by the studio, and then they fired Andrew Garfield for saying what was true. And they fired him because he was just like, look, I'm on the fan side. I'm not on your side. Well, screw you. You're done. Well, that, and also, um, he didn't show up to a, like, a press event, you know, because he was jet-lagged and sick. Yeah. So they decided to fire him. That's but, stupid. you know, Marvel Studios... Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. No, but that's fine. Marvel Studios, when they introduced the idea of bringing Spider-Man to the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe, they wanted Andrew Garfield. Huh. But what, yeah, Sony wouldn't let them? Well, no, because Sony decided to let Andrew Garfield go because they figured he wasn't right for being Spider-Man, which is their professional reason. Yeah. But really, they're just pissed off because he, you know, called out the studios and he didn't show up to that freaking uh, Plus, he was, he was 28 at the time, I think, by the time the second one came around. That was a really bad idea. They got to stop casting adults. You know, casting Tom Holland was the right idea. And Tom Holland's done a great job so far. Uh, my God, this yeah. music video, shit. I know, it's, it's truly so haunting. On it's, point. Um, so this is uh, actually, Pearl Jam had a couple down years before this came out. You know, the last couple albums hadn't sold very well, and uh, this one really just brought them back into the forefront. Sadly, I think it only lasted, like, one more album. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're still around, of course. They're the only great grunge band still around, I think. And uh, they, yeah. they, they've always been kind of rebellious. They don't play well with the studio system. I think that's why they don't get pushed very hard anymore, because... Uh, they started getting, I think it started around, what, 96, when they were pissed off at Ticketmaster for charging all those excess fees. And they decided oh, to go on, you know, selling their own tickets and doing their own tour. And I think they started toying with the idea of selling their own albums. So I think the studios just really don't want, or the labels don't really want anything to do with them. They're kind of like the way Radiohead is. Radiohead uh, could Ooh. still be huge, but, you know, they don't play well with labels. Mostly because the labels are notorious for ripping everybody off, especially nowadays when there's no money oh, made from music. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. Like, you look at Chance the Rapper right now. My God, he didn't have a label at all. He did his own thing, and he's a fucking huge success. Yeah. And he's giving back to the people. No, he's definitely giving back to Chicago. He's really trying to you know, push uh, progress down there. But, ugh, the way it's been run, 
yeah, not going to happen. Uh, he, he might be the only independent musician who's ever shown up on uh, Saturday Night Live as a host. Oh, wait. Uh, so is uh, Donald Glover. Is he on his own? I thought he was with the label. Oh, no, but I'm just saying. Oh, okay. Um, I just never, yeah. Oh, but you were just strictly speaking for, like, independent people. Correct. Uh, okay, okay. I got you. I got you. Um, oh, my God. We're at an hour point already. Okay, so we might have to fast forward some of this. Uh, Tool, um, this is their big breakout hit. You know, they were pushing ahead. Uh, they're, they're metal, uh, but with a grunge ideal to them, I think. You know, there's no hairspray. There's no thrash. They're more darker and... and Frankly disturbing. This video is truly haunting. I remember it just stuck with me for years. And I don't think they've ever actually shown up in any of their videos. Uh, all of their stuff's animated or it's clips from other things. Uh, even in his spinoff band, A Perfect Circle, it's also just you don't see the band really. It's just uh, clips of something else. He doesn't want to be a exactly. star. It's kind of the way Daft Punk has their idea. You know, they just don't want to be uh, up front selling themselves. Right, yeah, I know. But this, yeah... This also played on a uh, Beavis and Butthead. A lot of big music videos do, and that's how people get their recognition. Yeah. However, uh, Tool, like, like, Tool and um, White Zombie were both made by Beavis and Butthead. Without them, they would have oh, gone God, down yes. in obscurity. Oh, God, yes. No, you have to give credit to that. Like, Mike Judge really saw the potential and loved these guys. So I was like, you know what? Here, let me get a hold of them, put them on my show. Boom! Is it uh, really disturbing when it looks like there's poop going through the wall? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Oh, man, but still, this, this is such a haunting freaking video. Good yeah. Lord. Uh, Fred Sturr uh, directed this one. He also did one earlier, which I uh, out of the loop we'll get to later, but Fred Sturr, um, I guess he was just good with the stop-motion animation. Uh, do you want to go ahead and fast-forward past this one? Yeah, sure. I, we'll have no choice. Yeah, Fred, fast-forward. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're really running out of time right here. Um, right. Probably because my meandering in the beginning. Um I really hate these commercials on YouTube. It drives me up the wall. Um, so the next I one know. here is also it's, it's similar in style. Stop motion animation, a lot of uh, miniatures and practical effects. And I thought, I was so sure that this was from Will Vinton's studio. The reason I say this is anybody who has ever seen the PJs or Gary and Mike will know that the character design is very similar to what Will Vinton does from his stuff. I don't know if the director's from that. Nick Duncan? No, he's not. He's the other guy that was a musician and uh, ended up becoming a, a director. Yeah, I yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I kind of feel like I'm seeing like people from the PJs, but as like you know the band members. Yeah, this is another really haunting music video. Who knew that animation could be so insanely mature at the time? Because no one was doing this. No, not really. Uh, uh-uh. nobody. Um, Alice in oh, Chains, another one of those fell apart because of drugs. And, and he's one of the first guys to really go. If you look at all the big guys from the grunge era, there was Pearl Jam, still around, Soundgarden, sadly, just because Chris Cornell took his life. Uh, this band is still going, but it doesn't have the original lead. Lane Staley, because he died of an overdose. Uh, sadly, right, yeah. died and no one found him for like weeks. I guess his he just fell apart. In his, uh, you don't even want to talk about it. Um, damn heroin. James Addiction still around. Jane's Addiction is still around. Smashing Pumpkins is still around. Uh, Screaming Trees is gone. Um, Nirvana's gone. Uh, Stone Temple Pilots are gone. All because of drugs or suicide. It's crazy. Yeah, I know. It's just so freaking intense and insane. Like to see what he's going through. Or oh, Lincoln Park, my God. Oh, right. Depression. Yeah. Which is coming up here That's in a little bit. It. Yeah, this is a. 
truly fascinating. I love Alice in Chains. This album, um, Dirt, is their finest moment. Yeah, like four or five. But I, I had uh, their entire. Uh, so I think it's. Um, can't remember the one after this. There was one where it was a green cover, and uh, it had a dog with one leg, and it had a few hits off there. But it had that first top ten hit. Uh, 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 something beside you. Devil beside you. Devil I think that's it. Yeah, I can't remember. And then, of course, there's uh, Rooster, and then there's uh, Angry Chair yeah. as well. Those were all big hits on this album. Fuck, it was uh, Dirt is an amazing album. Uh, Wood, uh, which was also the lead song on the Singles movie soundtrack. Um, I, oh. I can't remember. There's a couple others. But, yeah, this is a huge album. Um, we should probably fast forward past this. Sorry, everybody. Prepare to fast forward. Prepare to fast forward. Fast forwarding. What am I looking at? When does this happen in the movie? Now. <laughs> You're looking at now, sir. When is okay. then? When will then be now? <laughs> Soon. <laughs> uh, this is the one I was talking about. Genesis originally did this song. It was with puppets. It was a commentary on Ronald Reagan and Republican bullshit that was going on in the 80s. I would sell my soul to the devil himself to have even that level of corruption in the government compared to what it is now. It's fucking madness. It is, yeah, exactly. And I think uh, Disturbed really did push that social commentary with this video. Yeah, well, this is what, this is during like Reagan, right? Usually. Or not during Reagan, I'm sorry, during uh, Bush 2. Yeah. Bush Jr. Except, you know, Bush was just kind of dumb. Himself. I would also but sell my else. soul to the devil to have the insanity of the George W. Bush era <laughs> compared to now. Oh, God, yes. They were and lovable doofuses. The they were, I mean, even though they fucked up, they were lovable doofuses. You know, at least they didn't seem like they had any ill will behind them. But because they were kind of dopey, they had the other guys behind them pushing horrible, monstrous things. The guy in charge right now, and if you're turning this off right now, fuck it, fine. Um, and if you haven't figured out right now that we're we're pretty, uh, yeah, I'm going to leave myself liberal because, you know, Jesus was a liberal. And I'm proud to say that I'm also pretty liberal. Um, and no, I'm not tarted, you fucking assholes. Um, I know. No, I'm just an aggressive progressive. Yeah, aggressive progressive. <laughs> And uh, the fact, if you're okay with the dipshit orange clown that's in office right now, just fucking, you know, I'll, I'll be glad to lose you. Sorry, bye. Yeah, <laughs> you're doing us a favor. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's there's a podcast that I listen to called uh, Completely Unnecessary Podcast, which is all about retro video games, but they also talk about cartoons and movies. And someone wrote them a letter saying, "Hey, more video game talk, less uh, liberal uh, libtard talk." And they're like, "It's our." fucking podcast we're gonna talk about whatever we want to talk about don't tell us what to do in our show yeah i will say this right here honestly this video is talking about unification and how we the people really do have power over over the corporations and the corrupt governments and it's it's an inspiring video i could not tell you is there another song by disturb that i know did they do down with the sickness they did down with the sickness okay and i think i don't think they were the ones that did bodies at the floor no, who are these? The guys that work uh, stuff over their face, like masks. Why did I know? Oh, no, that's Slipknot. Slipknot. Okay, Disturb. Is it the big bald guy with the big piercings in his lip? Yeah, and he also they also did another. Uh, they also covered another Genesis song. Uh, I can feel it in the air in the air tonight. Really, that doesn't sound like something they would do, huh? Yeah, no, they did a great job. With this dude, this guy's like the metal version of Phil Collins. Okay, that's cool. That's. How his voice is like the metal version of Phil Collins. It's amazing. You know, I said a lot of people give music from this era a really bad rap because of, you know, you had two choices. You had the pop-friendly 
younger guys come, you know, they, you know, emo. Actually, this whole era is kind of bitch about, huh? Smash, Smash Mouth is looked down on in that whole era. Then they moved on to New Metal with Limp Bizkit, which I truly agree is a shitty band. But Korn was not a shitty band. And there was a lot of other great guys around that time. Sepultura. Not oh, Sepultura. Yeah. Who are the ones that get it down? Um, dang it. They just did a sketch about it on Saturday Night Live where Tina Fey and her daughter sing it. I always called it ugly, beautiful music. What the fuck is the name of that band? Not Sepultura. That's that's older. I'll have to I'll have to look it up when I get the chance. I don't know. But again, um, why angels deserve to die? I oh, cry. What is it? What is the name of that band? System of a Down. System of a Down. Yeah, I like them a lot. You know, in emo oh, yeah. and pop punk are all looked down on, but I just say, you're, shut up, old man. <laughs> shut up. Oh, wow, yeah. I was listening to Alice <laughs> Cooper at work the other day, and some guy who was like 60 was bitching about it. He was like, man, my kids play that kind of shit. I tell them to turn it off. And I go, well, good thing you're not at home and you're not in charge. I'm going to keep Alice Cooper playing it. Besides, you're, isn't this from your era? I can't believe you're bitching about Alice Cooper. Some people just bitch about all music. Yeah, I know. God, I just love how this video ended. Yeah, I know. Just take out the big, fat, corporate, you know, greedy pig that's really running things. Boom. Oh, God, when we ever end Citizens United, man? Fucking destroying this country. I know. It's legal bribery. That's all it is. Yeah. And it should have gone a long time ago because it's expired. Like what? Last year or two years ago? Did it? I didn't know that. Um, yep. All right, so we're waiting for our next video to play because this is a mandatory commercial. Ugh, I can't even skip it. Oh, no. Not oh. the mandatory one. Yeah. Uh, bollocks, I, I'll tell you. I planned this as an hour, and I was way off. Um, all right, so uh, Lincoln Park, sadly, of course, the guy died. Uh, you know what's weird oh, no. is he, he was really connected to grunge music because you know, he was really close to Chris Cornell, and he was also temporarily the lead singer of Stone Temple Pilots about five years ago. And uh, sadly, took his life like a lot of the guys from the grunge era. Just, I can't argue because I've yeah, been there myself. Huh? Yeah, I mean, I've been there myself, so I can't say, oh, don't do it. It's hard to talk someone out of it. It's a mindset that really only you can get out of. I know. Like, even when he seemed happy, like, his wife was taking photos, you know, Chester Bennington. Mm -hmm. wife took photos of him, like, this is what depression looks like. He just seems happy, but at the same time, disinterested in everything and all that. Yeah. Man, shit, look at Robin Williams. Yeah. Fuck, um, it was a huge... Just awful. So this is actually a remix. This is not from the original album. Uh, Points of Authority, of course, shortened. I guess that's how you know it's from the remix. Um, I can't remember what the Reconfigured or something is the name of the album or something like that. I can't remember. But I want to say it's like 2001, 2002, where you know I just I was truly captivated by how much great CGI was. I, this is not from something else, as far as I know. This is all just original. Um, I think it might have been game demo stuff that they bought to put in. Because I don't have a director here either. I didn't write it down for some reason. Mm. This definitely looks like yep. uh, upper level PS2 special effects at the time. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I mean, for its era, this is great. Just really smoothed out. I feel like they am kind of looking at uh, Resident Evil mixed yeah. with a bit of a... Uh, well, it looks like the Starship Troopers cartoon. Uh, oh, yeah. Except more mechanical. It yeah. almost looks like Final Fantasy of Spirits Within mixed with uh, Resident Evil. Yeah, oh, definitely Spirits Within, yeah. And Bionicle. Minus the whole Lego block. Yeah, well, even mixed with, like, Macross. You know, Robotech. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, they are anime people. They do love anime, that's for sure. Especially Chester. And even have, like, a 
Gundam models in like uh, one of his music videos in the background. What is the, the guy who uh, is doing the rapping in it? Didn't he have another band that had a really big hit? Pac? Like, I don't know. Can't remember, but yeah, I always wondered why they have never. I mean, this is a really great video. I'm surprised they've never gone on to do a movie. Yeah, I know. I'm surprised it wouldn't get that spinoff for sure, especially because everybody was still loving Lincoln Park. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and skip ahead on this one. Yeah. Sorry. All right, and then we get to uh, Incubus Drive, right? Uh, yeah, because we got to sit through another fucking commercial. Hold on, hold on. I, luckily, I can skip in five seconds. I got it. I'm on to Incubus now. You know, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I the okay. So I went a long time I'm trying to do this fast thing. Let's pause for a second. Okay, well, no, let's keep Incubus going. Incubus is going. Um, I would. Uh, um, I'm trying this fasting thing because I heard it's supposed mm -hmm. to kickstart your metabolism. And uh, so I'll eat a very light breakfast, sometimes nothing, before I go work out. And then I try to go as long as possible after my workout to not eat anything. I want to see if my body will eat the fat. Um, and then I ate this giant fucking plate of scrambled eggs and chili. Scrambled eggs and chili, by the way, is the greatest thing ever. I, I just think about it one day. And uh, it's amazing. you got to try scrambled eggs and chili. Um, oh, like chili peppers or just no, regular? Uh, no, no, no. You know, you know, chili, canned chili, whatever. Um, right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Good. Pour that on top of a big pile of scrambled eggs, and it's just absolutely astonishing. And you get tons of protein. But because of all that, that's why I'm burping. So I apologize. No, it's perfectly fine. I, I understand. I burp and fart almost all the time. Like hell, you didn't even know that I was farting right now, did you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't. Just... I haven't been hot about doing this video because it's not completely animated. Actually, only small parts of it are animated. But, you know, I just kind of relented. It, it, it was uh, Here's another band that's really hated. I mean, I remember Incubus getting mocked endlessly when I was listening to a podcast about... Uh, do you remember a movie called Stealth with Jamie Foxx and Jessica Biel? Yes. Okay, so they did the soundtrack to that movie, and I'm listening to a podcast discussing it, and they're just mocking Incubus endlessly. And this is a really good song. I remember really enjoying these albums. My sister, she's only a few years younger than me, and, and for every album that I give her, she seems to give me an album. And Incubus is one of those where I was just like, this is pretty damn good, and it kind of sticks with you. Yes, it's more, what would you say, pop-friendly, but not every song has to be hardcore to be uh, respected. I don't get that. Can it just be middle I know. of the road? Can, can everybody like it and still be a great album? Exactly. Everybody, I mean, even the '80s, even the uh, '80s hair metal, they all had their freaking ballads. So why not these? Well, why not them? Here's what I'm thinking: is you know that first era of the MTV music videos, you know, the '81 to '86. Everybody cherishes yeah. that era. Everybody just says it's the greatest thing ever, and they, there's no bitching about whether or not it's a good song or bad song. They're right. all they're all pop friendly. They're all eccentric. It's all young people. So why is it they have a huge problem in, in 1999 when, you know, all that pop-friendly stuff came back? Why is it just shit on endlessly? I have no idea. I don't know. This like a toxic – some kind of toxic masculinity or some yeah. shit. Yeah. Some yeah, 41. Some, I'm like – Some 41 is one of the greatest metal bands ever, and everybody just locks them down to pop punk. They had – that first album of theirs, yes, that's a little more punk. But their third album, Chuck, becomes full metal. And after Whoa. that, it's just fantastic balance. But the, but the thing is, their metal has harmonies, and, and, and the music's really layered. Um, so it's really uh, challenging, progressive metal. And nobody wants to give them respect because they were teenagers when they became big. Oh, yeah, that's right. 
I also didn't write down the uh, director for this. I think it's because it was mostly just live action. Uh, but it was rotoscoped, of course. Uh, the, the lead singer, he would do drawings of himself. And then uh, the animators would go over with it later. Yeah, how he, he himself in the video draws. And, you know, this is a huge song, Drive. First time I ever saw ear gauges. I had never seen gauges like that before. And I was like, what the hell am I looking at? And then, of course, now it's still... A, do you think gauges have died off, though? I don't feel like a lot of younger guys are doing them. I think it's kind of fair. No. Yeah. No, people are still doing gauges like shit. Really? I see it almost every time. Yeah, I don't see it yeah. much anymore. Gauges and tattooing. A lot of the younger people aren't doing tattoos. It seems like everybody's going through a midlife crisis or getting tattoos. Oh, we're broke. <laughs> okay, so these are the two videos I added on. Oh, no, three videos. So Incubus was new, and then I totally forgot about this one. Green Jelly, Three Little Pigs. Also from the same oh director God. as Tool, Sober. Um, okay, so this song here was controversial. Not a lot of people remember this. I'm not sure if you're old enough to remember. Do you remember? Oh, I watched this a lot. I laughed my ass off. But do you remember the original oh. name of this band? No, I didn't. It was Green Jello. And they had no mm -hmm. album. They had no single. They only did this video as like a gag for their friends. They were a band, but they didn't have enough money to put together an album. So they did this one single, they shot the video, like on no budget whatsoever, and sent it out to people. The only way to get this song was to buy the VHS tape of it for like $9.99. And it sold like crazy. And then finally they put the single out, then an album. I think this is their only album and their only single. I have to say, because I don't remember who they were after this at all. I didn't even know who the artists were. Yeah, I, it, I just remember watching this music video so many times and just, you know singing along with some friends in uh, kindergarten and shit like that, but oh god. Oh, it makes me feel so old I was in high school by this point. <laughs> oh man, Adultland, oh god. Yeah, no, straight up, this is like very low budget, you know, Wallace and Gromit. Not by the hair of my chinny chin chin! And I'm huffing, I'm puffing, I'm pulling out house, and... I remember, um, I think three... Oh, man. So, you know, Tales from the Crypt got canceled. Or not canceled, but so much it just kind of ended its run. And then they thought it was best if they just continued the franchise as a movie series. So they did uh, Demon Knight and Bordello of Blood, which Bordello of Blood was a flop. Um, not just financially, but it was a god-awful piece of shit. Uh, oh, God, fucking Dennis Miller and Corey, yeah. uh, Corey Feldman. So they decided to go back to HBO, and I want to say it was 97, maybe 98 when they came back. And the very With first anime. episode of that comeback season was Bobcat Goldsweight in an animated version of uh, Three Little Pigs. And it was insanely gory. I mean, topped even Good this. God. Which, I remember at the time this video came out that it was controversial in, in its violence. They could only air it, I think, after 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, I know, because it did play late at night when I watched it. I think Cam Clark was also voiced one of the pigs. And um, what I remember is that you know the Big Bad Wolf came in ate the pigs, ate his brothers, and then the scientist one created, like, this Frankenstein monster and killed the big bad wolf. <laughs> I can't remember the rest of it, but I really want to look it up now. But when <laughs> when uh, when Tales from the Crypt came back, it just wasn't the same. Most of the creative team had moved on. I think Tales from the Crypt eked it out for maybe two more seasons, and uh, it just kind of killed its legacy by coming back. But that first episode was a riot. Oh my god. Uh, I know. I'll have to look it up when I get the chance. Yeah, their, their, name, their name was Green Jello, and they got sued. 
and uh, the repercussions was they had to end it. They had to change their name to Green Jelly. So if you ever catch a single or a video with Green Jelly, I heard it's a collectible. Oh, yeah, I know. Probably worth quite a bit. All right, let's go ahead and fast forward past this, except I do want to say Rambo. And it was Nightmare. Alright, let's go to the last video. Oh, uh, yeah, okay, cool. Now, this is also another claymation, but it's so freaking funny. Yeah. And, of course, cartoony and goofy. Uh, yeah, so many, many animated videos came after this. Actually, I'm not even sure if this is his first animated one. I'm trying to think. Uh, I think Christmas Time of Ground Zero was just clips, it wasn't animated. Right. However, this one. Okay. Oh, duh, of course not. We just mentioned we just mentioned uh, Beverly Hillbillies. That was his first animated one. But this is this one's first full on animated. Yes, like no live a you know no live action or anything. It's all just claymation. But my God, it and it was based off like one of the biggest movie franchises of all time, Jurassic Park. You know, it's weird is that this <laughs> album was not a hit. Um, he had a bad habit of doing that. Like he would have one big album, the next album would do okay. And the next album after that was horrendous, and everybody thought it was finally over, and then he would always come back like a fucking phoenix. It, it happened like four times for him. Just like with, um, oh, no, Running With Scissors? Yeah. Oh my God, that was another big one that I remember. No, it wasn't. Uh, it bombed. Oh, wow. So, if okay, so I'm not going to remember all the names in a row. So, it's, uh, I want to say the very first one was a decent-sized hit. It had two uh, hit singles. Uh, Weird Al in 3D did very well. Um, Dare to be Stupid did pretty good. And then Polka Party in 86 was a huge flop. I think the biggest hits of his, of his career, I think it only sold like 180,000 or something like that. There's no hits off of it all. Though I believe Living with a Hernia is a very funny song. Um, the, the next year is when he had, uh, uh, Christmas Time of Ground Zero off that Christmas album, which, you know, was a mixture of everybody at that time. That was a hit. Well, not huge, but even worse, even worse came out in 88, and that was a phenomenon. That's one with Fat and uh, oh, yeah. um, Lasagna and stuff like that. Um, then, oh, my God. I'm sorry. I'm just laughing at the video. I just love how he just hate Barney at all. Uh, UHF was a bomb. The album was a bomb. Not a single hit off that one. Uh, then he came oh, roaring yeah. back in 92 with uh, uh, Smells Like Nirvana, which uh, I think went double platinum. Um, so the one with this one is, uh, it did okay. I think there's three singles off that one. The one that's a parody of, uh, Crash Test. Paradise? What? No, that was, that was after this. Um, what's the one where he's like, mm-hmm. you know, the headline news, whatever it was, where he's making fun of all the stuff going on in the... Yeah, this was, I think that's just what the, na the song is called, like, yeah. mm-hmm. And then there was, uh, uh, Barney Rubble, the Flintstones, whatever, you know, the parody of, uh, Give It Away. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah, one. but you have a dude now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was great. <laughs> um, I love the freaking music videos. But then I love music videos. Yeah, this one did, like, I think it went gold. But then 96 with, um, yeah, 96 with uh, Amish Paradise was a phenomenon. That movie, that album was huge. Um, by the way, listening to that album out in the country, trying to find a comet, and we weren't paying attention, and we drove off a road at high speeds and crashed the car and uh, permanently fucked up my tailbone. Ow. Yeah, um, then uh, the one with uh, the Force, not the Force Awakens. What's uh, the, what's the song from uh, Phantom Menace? The Legend Begins. Oh yeah, uh, the one from Phantom Menace. Oh yeah, uh, yeah it is. Yeah, so that one did okay, but um, then the one he did with the Eminem wow. parody was a huge flop. So he just keeps coming and going. And then White Nerdy saved him. 
then he had a bomb uh, album, and then uh, that one, that last one that did so well with uh, Tacky and stuff like that, um, Handy, those, those, that one album did the best of all, I think, uh, at least debut-wise. Oh, yeah, God, I loved it. No, oh, God, especially Tacky. Uh, that just The music video itself, just one big tracking shot, getting all those uh, comedians like Margaret Cho, uh, Eric Stone Street. Um, oh, gosh, why am I forgetting her name? From, she was from E. She was. A, oh, I know. Uh, I can't remember. I know. Oh God. Balls of Fury. Okay, so the director of that last video yeah. was Mark Osborne, who directed Kung Fu Panda, the SpongeBob Spare, uh, SpongeBob Spare, can't talk. SpongeBob SquarePants. Um, he did Monsters vs. Aliens. So he's a really big director, and you can see the guy's got serious talent. That was a hell of a video. Oh, for sure. God, yes. I mean, it, again. Just all the little parodies of, like, you know, all the people getting eaten or, or uh, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger coming in dressed as Last Action Hero but getting cut in half. I'm like, was that a metaphor for how bad Last Action Hero <laughs> yeah. was? I st- no, I, I love that movie. Um, but it did get destroyed well, by I the did too. Oh, I did, too. I, st- I always enjoyed it, especially growing up on it. And it was on almost all the time on HBO. Huh. You know what's weird is I'm looking at Aisha this. Aisha Tyler, that's her name. He directed Aisha Shaw. Tyler, thank you. He did the Kung Fu Panda movie, which is a massive hit. That was in 2008. He's only directed one movie since, The Little Prince, which I believe got sent straight to Netflix. That is a bummer of a downplay for a career. That is a bit, but my God, that was just, again, beautifully, I just don't get it. Yeah. I'm baffled. All right, so this episode's longer than usual. I Sorry, I didn't plan properly. I probably could have removed a couple of videos because they reiterated a lot of the stuff that was already in previous videos. But there was a lot of fun to watch. And I love those songs. Not, oh, my God, not yes. Not a single bad song in a whole bunch. Not really, no, no. I think they're all great and so fun. Oh, um, my gosh, especially Tank on me. But you think, okay, are we going to come out with Volume 2? Are we doing Volume 2? We might. If we can get some more videos. So you, you can start making me a list of videos. We can maybe do some newer stuff. We'll do a sequel or a mini-sode covering some more. Um, okay, so check us out on Facebook under Back in Tunes. You'll find all our episodes there. Subscribe, like, share, something, anything. Please, I'm desperate. I need love. I'm lonely. I'm showering. <laughs> what if we just, wait, no, no, no. Nope. It just be clips from the movie. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> um, all right, everybody. That is it for us here. Uh, Jacob, send us out. Hey, good night and good luck, everybody. Namaste. And, as Michael would say, be excellent to each other. Why don't I ever say it anymore? I'm not confused. I, I may have to start saying it again. Be excellent to each other.
Everybody, welcome to another episode of Trash Cinema. I'm Michael on this side, Kersey's on the other side. How's it going, Kersey? Hey, hey, what's going on? Okay, so I'm not sure how I feel about the movies today. Um, we chose Robo Chicks, basically, and Deadly Friend. And Robo Chick is fun, but it's frustrating because there's no reason why it's as long as it is. It's so long. Yeah, it definitely wears on you after a while. Isn't it only like an hour and 40 minutes? I feel like it was only that long, but it felt like it was 17 hours. It's, well, it's like um, a, a Roger Corman film. He always had a rule that you had to keep it under four reels, which is uh, 79 minutes long. That way he could save on shipping. So his movies are really, really short, and most of them, that's all the plot that was in it. You know, it's like, there's, don't go any farther. Whereas Robochick, I felt like it should have been 80 minutes at best and done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I, wanted, I think the the biggest problem facing that movie is that it's just not funny, and if it, it it's a comedy, so if a comedy's not funny, it's just nothing. Yeah, I thought it was fun though. Does that make sense? I mean, you know, I didn't laugh out loud, but there's the kind of a, a goofy sense of like, hey, let's just throw a movie together and, and just you know, friends hanging out kind of thing. It, it's nothing classy, of course. It looks like a direct-to-video movie, but um, I didn't have a problem with it. Yeah, well, there are some parts that I, I thought were good and some jokes that actually were, were genuinely funny. Um, but on the whole, I don't, I, I don't think I would watch it again. No, no, no. Uh, I, I, yeah, I could probably see myself watching it with, the, with a bunch of friends ironically, but I, I, I wouldn't watch it again probably. Here's the weird thing is in the credits, it says RoboChick was played by two different people, which... I don't recall there being two Robo Chicks, so they literally had two different actresses playing the same role. Did you notice a switch? I didn't notice a switch. I, I thought if if that's the case, was one of them like a stunt double, and they just like oh, just give them the acting credit. Yeah, maybe. But um, it's known as Robo Chick here. Uh, some places known as Cyber Chick, and then some of it, some countries it's known as Thundertronic, <laughs> which is a cool name. I like kind of like Thundertronic. It sounds like a a, a dance band from the early '80s. Yeah, that's a much better, it's a much better title. Uh, I, I think the the one of the problems that the movie had with comedy is it didn't allow the jokes to breathe. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Or what, what I mean by that is that for a joke to land, you kind of have to give it a minute to like sink in for what's happening. So with most jokes, there's always a pause. So there's always a moment of reflection before you get the punchline. But with this movie, it just kind of all ran into just. You know, here's the joke set up punchline without any sort of uh, place for it to, to hit. It's like it's like watching the, the new Ghostbusters movie. I don't know if you saw it. I, I saw guess. some of it, yeah. and it's it's terrible. And it, it has the same problem, where it does not let you, the, the comedy breathe. Huh. No, it is here. It says, the star Kathy Shower was the executive producer, but she quit the picture soon after filming began. Another uncredited actress was hired was hired to impersonate her. You're the executive producer. How does that go so wrong so fast? You can't fix it. You're in charge. <laughs> what? Okay. Oh, boy. Um, and it has kind of the, uh, I don't know if it's coincidental that Burt Ward's in it, who played Robin in the old Batman TV series. 
but it does have that feel. Like, it has kind of a campy spoof of superhero sci-fi films. Mm-hmm. Oh, and can I just say that the guy who was the... Boy, who was he? It was the the person that was the um, that was with the press. Camber, the journalist. Oh, do, uh, John Kent. Yeah, I have to say that it, maybe it's just because everyone else around him is terrible. But I actually thought he was good. Literally, his only movie. Really? Yeah, it's his only time well, he's ever yeah. acted. <laughs> Makes sense, I guess. That's too bad. I I thought he was like the only compelling character because he wasn't completely ridiculous yeah and the doctor uh dr colin um he it seems like he's more of the star than anybody else and there's times when he's amusing but he shouldn't be on the screen as much as he is yeah that was one of those things where he must have known the director or something and they thought he was really funny but no one else does (laughs) and no one had the heart to tell him yeah, so there's not much to this movie. It's a little long. It doesn't do any harm. It's like one of these old, um, if you watched USA Up All Night back in the late 80s, early 90s, this is one of those kind of films that they would burn off late on a Saturday night. Um, but I would say the second movie that we were going to discuss, Deadly Friend, had so much potential, and there's so much that goes wrong. Part of it, after, see, I used to blame Wes Craven for this movie going wrong, but then you start doing some research on what happened behind the scenes. Um, and you don't blame him that much. It's more about Warner Brothers meddling into the film. Yeah, I, I, this might be one of our more mainstream uh, movies we've done in a, uh, probably since uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. But yeah, yeah it was it funny because we usually don't do movies that have like big-name studios like Warner Brothers. So this is interesting. No. Well, and it's funny. is Those are usually the more fascinating of the ones that go wrong because there's money behind it, there's talent behind it, and for some reason something just goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, what was the problem with this one? Um, with me, this is one of the very first horror movies I was ever able to watch. I'd recorded it off of uh, Fox, uh, probably around 1991. So I was fascinated by it for a long time. And then, you know, you take a decade away and then you come back to it and you go, oh, oh, this is really campy. A lot of it, and I hate to say it because she was only 16 at the time, but, um, oh crap, she played Buffy. Why am I, why am I forgetting the name? Who's the star? Aha! I don't remember her. I'm gonna stop for a second. I'm sorry. It's well, Matthew okay. Lombardo is the main kid. He's the main focus, and he's a really good actor. I knew him from uh, Little House on the Prairie, and he kind of stopped acting soon after Deadly Friend. Uh, it's Kirsty Swanson, who was later Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but she is the girl who gets turned oh. into a cyber girl. Um, she's too young, I think. I, I, they had her act in such a campy, silly fashion. It's hard not to giggle at her. Uh, robo behavior right but i mean who 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 can make that compelling i mean the only movies with robots in it that are compelling is they don't act like robots like blade runner yeah um well maybe robocop but that's about it yeah, most well, robot movies are most like good mainstream robot movies are ones that people remember are ones where people don't actually act like robots yeah and and the robot that's the implant from you know is bb and, you know, he's a silly little robot. He's almost like one of those Star Wars R2-D2 kind of characters, and they basically take that chip and they put it in her brain. How that works is beyond me. I, I was still just... have no idea how that's going to work. <laughs> I, I think that he did explain that uh, the, it, the, the chip has some kind of organic material in it or something that he could wire to the brain. I don't know. Yeah, and it, how it, is I mean, he the teenager? It, it... Why isn't this guy working for Apple already? I mean, <laughs> it just seems so silly. Um, that you know, this high school student comes up with this groundbreaking technology. 
Uh, wasn't he teaching a college class? Wasn't he like a savant or something? Maybe. I mean, I forgot about that part, but I thought he was just a regular high school student. But maybe you're right. Yeah. I, you, you never know with this one because they, they really gloss over who he is, or at least his intelligence. So you kind of have to just sort of make connections yourself. Well, the funny thing is, it's almost, uh, this is really obscure. But after he um, ended his run on Little House on the Prairie, he was in a TV show called Wiz Kids, where they were crime fighters who used science to solve stuff. You know, this is before CSI. And they're all like middle school kids. It's almost like a um, spinoff, because he's almost the exact same character. Oh, that's funny. And it's really obscure. It only lasted like 13 episodes. But um, So to give you the plot breakdown, uh, Paul moves into town. It's kind of like the Karate Kid thing where he's, uh, him and his mom are moving to this whole new town. And he's kind of an outcast and he makes friends with other outcasts. You know, he's getting bullied and stuff like that. And um, turns out the girl who lives across the way, you know, the girl next door, perfect little uh, nice girl, um, is being abused by her father. And he accidentally kills her. So um, Matthew Laborde, um, he plays Paul Conway, and he uses the technology from his robot, um, puts it in her brain. How he even has the medical ability to do this? I mean, it just seems like it's so dangerous. How would she not get like a brain infection later? <laughs> Some sort of like. Well, session. she. I, I mean, part of the reason why it's a why I, I'm okay with it is because she was already dead anyway, so uh, there wasn't really any risk yeah. of fucking up. Because you know, what are you gonna do? She's already dead. And so. Part of it is the fact that BB is programmed to protect, but also she has all this rage that she, you know from being abused and, and shitty neighbors and stuff like that. So having trouble functioning the way she used to, so she has violent tendencies. And some of it's great. I uh, just the part where she blows up that lady's head with a basketball is completely unrealistic, <laughs> but it's also the funniest, the most memorable part. And it, it is. Complete, it is so gruesome too. Like the body kind of walking around still. Yeah. Uh, was Just like spasming around with the fingers. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that was another thing. The special effects look pretty, pretty damn good in this movie too. Um, one of the, like the, the scene at the end when it's like uh, pulling the, the skin off and it's a robot underneath. Yeah. Uh, it was, I'm pretty sure that was a dream sequence or whatever. It was. But what I, I thought, I thought it looked great. It was pretty disgusting, but. Anyway, yeah, the, I think the, the effects are fantastic. Now, here is looking into the history of this film, that it was meant... Um, Wes Craven wanted to use the success of Nightmare on Elm Street to jump to another genre. Uh, he wanted to stop being stuck in straight-up horror films. And for a brief moment, he was attached to Superman 4, A Quest for Peace. Another insanely... Like, what movie? Um... But Christopher Reeve and him could not agree on what to do with the film, so I think he was fired like four days into production. Oh, yeah, because the actual <laughs> Superman 4 turned out so great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then he did this film. I, I'm pretty sure this came after those first four days of shooting. And he, they did it very fast, but he meant to be like a low-budget personal drama that had a little bit of the fantastic in it. And then Warner Brothers, about a month into it, found out who Wes Craven really was, and that he had a massive <laughs> following. They didn't even know. They just hired this guy based on the success. How, how did you? If he was successful enough to hire, didn't you look at Nightmare on Elm Street and see what kind of movie it was? I don't understand how that even happens. And they're like, well, he's got this huge fan following. The fans are expected to be horror. So halfway through, they started changing the script. And when it was done shooting, they said go back and start filling it with more gore scenes change the ending so there's lots of scenes that were added in 
after the movie was done, which throws off the tone, but it still doesn't deny that you take all of that out, and the whole BB robot thing is really silly, and it, it, it's yeah. kind of a laughable film at times. Yeah, I mean, I there, there is a good movie in there somewhere. I mean, I can see the potential that it has, but... I, it's just it just doesn't work as a good movie. It's it's great. I I still like it. I've seen it a couple times actually, but it's by no means a, a great movie. You know the funny thing is the the most important scene in this film is at the end when she's fighting between who she was and who she has become, and the cop is trying to stop her. And then it does this silly slow mo thing where her hands turn to BB's hands. And then she just starts, starts running at him. Yeah, so running after with her head flopping around. I'm like, I'm sure a robot doesn't have floppy. Head. You know, it's not gonna do that. And she's just like, Paul, Paul, baby, Paul, baby. <laughs> uh, and it just kind of like, it's still a sad ending though, man. I remember when I watched this the first time, I was devastated because I don't think I'd ever seen. Well, I mean, she's kind of an anti-hero, but she was like the heart of the movie, and it's so like just like devastating. Like what? No, you're supposed to fix her. <laughs> yeah, um, it. Yeah, I don't know. It, it. I don't know what doesn't really work about the movie because I. I even on the, the. I think it's my third time watching it. I still enjoyed watching it, but there's just something about it. I think it's just kind of the the lack of any kind of real character development. And what kind of threw me off is that I thought his mom in the movie was Beverly Crusher, Gates McFadden, for yeah, some reason. Yeah. She sounds exactly like her. You know, so that I bet really you, bothered me. I bet you the original cut of this movie, if somebody could restore it with all of the character, like they, they said they cut out a bunch of the character stuff because it was kind of slower than what they wanted to sell to the audience. So I'm wondering if there is another version out there just sitting on Warner Brothers' shelf. That would be interesting. I mean, I, I, I do think that making it sort of a, a semi-unrealistic character study or whatever, like kind of like, um, what was it, Ghost Story that came out recently where Casey Affleck is under a white sheet? Like, that's stupid, but it works as a movie. I mean, like, I, you can suspend your disbelief on a robot if the movie is good. Yeah. Um, Wes Craven, I think, has one of the most frustrating filmographies because – Every time he seems to get going, something happens to dead stop it. Like, if you look... Now, have you seen most of his movies? I have seen uh, uh, quite a few, and yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Because it's Last House on the Left, and then uh, The Hills Have Eyes. So he's just double-jumped to, I mean, just truly great horror films. And then he does, like, Deadly Blessing, which is really boring, and Swamp Thing, which is too low-budget for its own, you know, uh, ideas, but it, it's kind of campy fun. And then, you know, he does a bunch of TV movies, which are varying in quality. And Nightmare on the Street, of course, this is like big breakthrough comeback kind of thing. And then it just goes downhill again. It goes Deadly Friend. Uh, oh, no, I forgot. There's Hills Have Eyes 2, which is one of the most disappointing sequels in history because most of it is footage from the first movie. Even the dog has a flashback. That's how bad this movie is. Jesus. There's this. There's uh, Serpent, in the Rainbow. Serpent in the Rainbow isn't bad. But then Shocker. I know people who love Shocker, but I think Shocker is a huge piece of shit. Oh, I haven't seen Shocker. Yeah, it's one of those where he's clearly trying to cash in on his Nightmare on Elm Street Freddy Krueger kind of like, you know, you know when horror movies became more about the mascots than actually scaring people. Yeah. Uh, so it, that kind of leads to that kind of leads to a question, is Wes Craven a hack or do you think that he's just he's just too willing to compromise? 
I know more about Wes Craven than I probably should because this is a long... Okay, so I used to work with um, the sister of Wes Craven's producing partner. And the stories you would hear out of their production house were so frustrating and mind-boggling. Um, and it started, I think, with Cursed because that was such an unbelievably frustrating, stressful shoot that I think Wes Craven lost it a little bit. Even though the next movie he made, um, Red Eye, was fantastic. But then you would just hear about, um, oh, they offered him Disturbia. And then he would turn it down saying that it was old hat, you know, it was just another remake of Rear Window. And then come into the production office a month later with a script that was exactly the same concept. And like, what are you, what? Or they offered him a $100 million Alice in Wonderland, like a really dark version of it. And he wouldn't do it. Even though the script was good and there was a lot of money in it, he just wasn't interested in it. And then he would just come back with, a, let's go remake Hills Have Eyes. And uh, because the first Hills Have Eyes um, remake was so good and he was so jealous that he fired the guy, Alexander Aha, from it and decided that him and his son needed to write and produce the second one, which was a giant piece of shit. And um, it was just stuff like that that's so frustrating. My Soul to Take was a terrible decision. I don't understand why he even made that. Yeah, it sounds like he might be a bit of a hack, but just, like, sometimes strikes gold. Yeah, he's he's heralded as this, like, genius, but, you know, I got the same problem with John Carpenter. People say he's just being a rebellious punk against the system, and I'm like, you know what? I think a couple times, you know, he's just phoned it in. He just wanted a big paycheck, and he didn't give a shit. Somebody, oh, God. Ghost of Mars Did is you? a fucking terrible movie, and I have <laughs> people who champion it, and I go, no, it's awful. I know. Did you see his last movie? I think it was called The Ward. The Ward was so unbelievably safe and not it, really one of his films. Oh, I feel like it was just another Jesus one. He's like, yeah, hey, sure, I haven't made a movie in a while. Let's go ahead. That yeah, that's exactly how I felt about it. It just felt like if, if you were to if you were to like boil the flavor out of like every ghost movie, that's exactly what it would have been. Yeah, I mean, it's not a bad movie. It's a well made movie, but it doesn't say anything. It has no personality. Mm-hmm. Which is why I don't that's like what a he lot was. Of those, a lot of those ghost movies are safe mom movies. You know, what would your you know forty year old mother w- watch? It's one of these. You know, it's just like safe, boring studio fodder. Yeah, exactly. That's I mean, yeah, John Carpenter. I'm going to be totally honest right now. I love John Carpenter. He's a bad director in the sense that he does not know how to move a camera. Like his directing style is so bland and boring. But it's his attitude and it's in his movies that make them so good. Yeah, there, there's a certain there's a style, and it's not a, it's not like a, a camera style. Like Paul Thomas Anderson does, like really long takes and has really epic shots. I mean, John Carpenter doesn't really have a directing style that you would notice. I do, but he has he has attitude. I do, but up until the point where he stopped working with the studios, when he did Big Trouble in China, that's like the last of a certain era where Dean Cundy was his uh, director of photography. They shot ultra wide. They had a very specific vision. But then he just got, I don't know if he got angry with the way Starman and Big Trouble in Little China turned out. Then he did Prince of Darkness and They Live, both movies I enjoy, but they're so flat and poorly made. Um and then he goes and does uh, uh, Memoirs of the Invisible Man, which is this massive budget, big studio movie, Chevy Chase, and it doesn't work. I, I, this is an era when um, John Carpenter really didn't seem like he knew what he was doing anymore. Yeah, uh, but yeah, pretty. I would agree. I, I think the the last great movie he made was probably They Live, and that was really boring. I like In Still the Mouth good. of Madness. In Still the Mouth good. of Madness is uh, probably his most underrated. 
And the most disappointing is Escape from L.A. I don't know how we got on a John Carpenter kick, but Wes Craven and John Carpenter kind of have that thing where, um, well, John Carpenter's a slow downhill process, whereas Wes Craven would have, like, A Vampire in Brooklyn, which is a terrible movie, a big-budget movie with Eddie Murphy, and then, you know, you think he's done, and he comes back with Scream. I know some people hate Scream because it changed horror into, like, these hip teens that knew everything about horror, but... That initial screen was so well made and so different from anything else that he had done, and it changed the horror landscape. In fact, it saved the genre because nobody was putting money into horror. Yeah, and it kind of started the love affair of, of the meta concept. Yeah. Uh, but hold on, did you say Wes Craven directed a vampire in Brooklyn? He did, yeah. This is. Uh, Holy he, he, well, shit, that done, movie sucks. He did A New Nightmare. And that one was really critically acclaimed. It won some independent awards or got nominated for it, but nobody showed up. And then all of a sudden he gets this offer that Eddie Murphy apparently is a big fan of his and that he wants to do horror comedy. And he's like, well, I did some joke stuff with Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, I can handle it. And it's such a poorly made, like, flat. It, most of it's the fact that it's a vanity project by um, Eddie Murphy. Every time Eddie Murphy would mm-hmm. do one of these where he would just get makeup for the entire film and be other people, it's usually a disaster. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Um. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Uh. I, in the mouth of Madness, I hadn't seen that yet, but that is on my list of things to watch because I. Ha- yeah. Like you said, I've heard that it's very underrated, especially if you're a fan of Carpenter. Yeah. But um, what was the one that you said after that? In the uh, mouth of Escape Madness? from L.A. Escape from L.A. was Escape huge, from L.A. Yeah. So be huge budget. Uh. Really crazy. There's stuff I do like about it, but he makes <laughs> it. He's so lazy making it. All these special effects look so bad. And I had someone arguing with me. That's how he does things. He's punk rock. That's why he, he makes me look purposely bad. I go, then why does, why does They Live, which costs $4 million, why do the special effects in that look so good? Why does Big Trouble in Little China look yeah, so that's... good? He didn't do that with yeah, uh, but... Memoirs of the Invisible Man, so why does Escape from L.A. look so shitty? Yeah, that was the thing that shocked me about first. Because I have to say that I think Snake is a better character in Escape from L.A. Uh, I, I, I lo- it's just like small details. Like one of the things, and it, maybe this isn't so small, but in the first movie, he was always talking about, you know, he's going to try to kill um, the, the guy who hired him. I can't even remember his name right now. But, uh, Talc, I think. Talon? Uh, yeah. Talc. Talc. Yeah, I was always going to kill him. And he had a lot of times to try to. And I guess he did choke him once. But I like that in Escape from L.A., when they gave him the gun, the first thing he tried to do was to shoot him with it. Yeah. There's stuff like that that was just delightful. But, I mean. Come on, do I? So we're really gonna watch Snake play basketball, and that's gonna be like a big <laughs> yeah. epic moment. There, there's some com- with that. If you view Escape from LA more as a comedy, it gets better. Like there, I love that part where the bald guy's like, "Look at me when I'm talking to you, shit heel," and he just turns around, unloads on him, and then just keeps going. Yeah, so there's great, there's great moments, and Snake is such a great character that it's kind of worth it to watch. It's still fun. Watching him surf is it looks terrible. Like all of these things look awful, but mm-hmm. Kurt Russell is just so charismatic that you don't even really mind. But um, the, that's the thing that's so frustrating about that movie is like because in the first Escape from New York, uh, you know, there's like this big epic showdown where they're you know like gladiators in a ring fighting with spiked bats, and in this movie, the big epic thing to do was play basketball. It's just so <laughs> underwhelming. It's yeah. just so stupid. I can't believe we just changed subjects. So somehow we added Escape from L.A. into this one. But uh, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Really, there was nothing much to talk about Robochick. I feel kind of bad. But it seemed like one of those movies that would have been, especially since Elves um, is directed by the same guy. And there's so much to talk about in Elves. 
Um, and there just wasn't enough because Elves wasn't a comedy. It was unintentionally funny, whereas Cyber Chick is trying to be, or Robo Chick is trying to be funny. It just kind of fails. And then Deadly Friend, and, and, I, yeah, Deadly Friend, there's a lot to talk about with that one. Yeah, that's, what I was going to say that about Elves is that, like, there was so much going on in that movie. Not and Most of it was, was unimportant, but at least, because there, there was just so much to talk about. Like, there was Nazis and incest, so there was... Uh, there's elves, or just one elf, I guess. There was like all of these weird things to talk about. Yeah. But like Robocheck is just, it's a, it's a female uh, Robocop basically. That that's it. There's nothing really interesting about it. You know what's shocking is that Deadly Friend cost eleven million dollars. I just don't see it. I would have said three at most. I mean, how how is Deadly Friend um, eleven million when Nightmare on Elm Street, which gives you so much more, only cost one point eight million? What happened? I have no idea. I, maybe just because he was a hotter commodity back then, so he was trying to he was trying to get more money. Maybe just the reshoots were expensive. I don't know. And the guy who wrote Deadly Friend, Bruce, uh, Bruce Joel, Wo- oh, I can't talk. Bro- Bruce Joel Rubin, um, apparently he had a fascination with death because after this he would write Jacob's Ladder and Ghost. Oh, you know, I sorry to go on yet another one. Wait, Ghost is that the one with Patrick Swayze? Yep. Okay, here's the thing I've always wondered, and I've had debates about this, but the scene where he comes back and they're doing the clay pottery, that's not actually Patrick Swayze. That That is uh, Whoopi Goldberg, right? I mean, it, they, they're the ones having sex because, oh. like, oh, it, was never, it was it's... never established. Yeah. It was never established that he can take physical form. He can only talk through other people. So I always saw that as just being an artistic way of presenting it, but I'm pretty sure... The undertone of that was that was Whoopi Goldberg. I have to see it again because I don't remember any of that. I've only seen it like once when it originally came out. It's a good movie. At least I thought it was a good movie. What you like as a kid, it may not be what you like as an adult. Um, but I'm looking at this and uh, yeah, I gotta look that. I gotta uh, watch the movie again or do some research on it because you know what? That that's actually makes it more interesting in my opinion, honestly. Yeah, I would have liked to see that. It's like. They're having sex or whatever, and then it like pans over to a mirror and just Whoopi Goldberg. (laughs) That would be great. Uh All right, so our next episode, um, you suggested Class of 1999. Now, the world of Class of is actually three films. I've seen all three of them. They're all very entertaining. The last one, not as much because the budget's much, much lower. But have you seen the original Class of 1984? Uh, I have not. Now, Class of 1984 is more in the vein of Death Wish. It's about these punk kids in a slightly futuristic New York where an innocent teacher comes to this really shitty school and he runs into these, like, uh, they're not just dumbass. Usually these punks are usually portrayed as dumbasses, but they're like sociopaths. They're really intelligent, they're clever, and they figure out ways of torturing these people and getting away with it. And... So there's Class of 1984, and then the guy who made that has some success from making Commando. So he used uh, that clout and raised money to make Class of 1999, which switches places. So the danger is no longer the students. The danger is the teachers. And the teachers are cyborgs, and, and they take on these kids. And that movie's really trashy, but it's fun. And then there's a sequel where it's called uh, Class of 1999-2, The Substitute. I don't know if we'll find all three of these movies, but I'm really good at finding stuff, so I'll look around for you. All right, thanks. No problem. And Class of 1999 is coming out on a special edition Blu-ray here in a month from Vestron, so I think it's perfect timing that we discuss it. Yeah, it's a good idea. All right, everybody. 
Um, check us out on Facebook under Retro Rock Entertainment or Video Nights. You'll find all the episodes of Trash Cinema there. And, uh, Kersey, thank you for another good episode. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. Have a good night.